With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, first ladies usually have a cause. And you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt. And we need to teach them how to talk to each other how to treat each other, and uh, to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice, since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. The addictive nature of social media doesn't just have parents, lawmakers, and advocates worried. Last year, more than half of U.S. teens said it would be difficult to give up social media, including TikTok and YouTube. The latest episode of our Student Reporting Lab series, Moments of Truth, tells the story of one teen named Connor who faced this dilemma head-on with Instagram. When I first saw you over Zoom, I was like, wow, that guy looks kind of interesting. And then I just remember standing next to you in choir every day. Due to proximity, we just became friends. Yeah, I was kind of experiencing this weird, great loneliness period in my life. I'm diagnosed with bipolar and OCD. And um, I think I was going through a rough patch at the time. So that friendship was almost like of holy stature. I started like relying on you to make it through the day. We started sharing locations around then. I could kind of see the obsession starting. I remember getting like super worried about you um, and I wanted to help you, but I didn't know how. I had kind of a lack of self-control. Like I would repeatedly check and check and check. The accessibility that the internet has to kind of enable that really did not help. And um, I don't think that a 15-year-old kind of had that self-control. You were DMing me like every hour about like how sucky everything was. It, it was kind of unwelcome. Since it was so frequent and so often, I gave like one word responses and stuff. And I was also going through a lot at that point in time. It had really just become a lot to handle like the problems of two people. I came up to you. I told you that uh, I was, I needed to like distance myself from this relationship that we had. So when we weren't talking, I tried not to really open Instagram that much. I learned to practice self-control because the thing is, if I allow myself to consistently check the locations and consistently check the little active thing on Instagram DM, then I know I'm gonna spiral. And once I'm in that obsessive state, it's hard to get out of it. Now that at least I'm less connected, there's there's more of an open space for us. We just go on walks, um, we go to Goodwill sometimes. When someone's actions and what someone's doing is accessible to you at all times, I don't think that's how hum humanity is intended to be. It's unnatural. It's unnatural for you to have access to what someone's doing all the time. It's also a sign that maybe you're focusing on that person more than yourself. I am just grateful it worked out, I think, and how stable our relationship is. It's, it's been a ride. A beautiful ride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I think to understand the story of the Freedom Riders, you have to understand how abhorrent segregation was in the Deep South. Segregation was so bad back then, my rule was if it was in the South, it wasn't worth it. And most of my family was in the South, and I didn't care. They were not worth it. The community is mourning the loss of Nashville native King Hollins, a local freedom rider who helped pave the way for civil rights. News 2's Nikki McGee sat down with his daughter today and has more on the memories their family will cherish forever. Well, yeah, Kenley, King Hollins' family tells me since his passing, they've received calls from former mayors and even city leaders, all remembering his impact. His family wants the community to know that he passed peacefully at home, surrounded by his loved ones. But from desegregation to lunch counter sit-ins, Hollins leaves behind a lasting legacy. 82-year-old King Hollins now rests in peace after decades of fighting for justice and equality right here in Nashville. Family gathered at his home one week after his passing, looking back on precious memories. Eddie was a lover of all. Um, he, he was there for so many people in his neighborhood, in his community. Leading the way for desegregation, Hollins was one of the first 14 African-American students to attend Father Ryan High School in the 1950s. He was, was proud to be a part of integrating the school and to um, enable others to follow behind his footsteps. He formed many friendships and bonds there at Father Ryan. Um, that, you know, we still are good family friends to this day. In the 1960s, while attending Fisk University, Hollins would help lead the Woolworth lunch counter sit-in in downtown Nashville. They were nonviolent um, students and everything, so they had to learn how to deal with um, people trying to antagonize them, possibly, you know, spitting in their face trying to put cigarettes out on them. Alongside him, his dear friend Frankie Henry, who still has one of those cigarette burn scars. She recalls herself, Hollins, and several with them getting arrested and spending two weeks in jail. Hollins keeping the cup he was fed potato soup out of. We slept on cold steel beds with air holes in them so the mattresses could breathe. However, they didn't supply us Holland's family wants the community to know he transitioned peacefully at home with his family. In addition to three children, he also leaves behind several grand and great-grandchildren. Holland's family shares what they hope others will take away from his life. To um, continue to for fairness and equity with, with things, you know, don't forget the Nashville, the original Nashville. As we grow, you know, let's grow together as a community and everything. Um, he would just say, you know, let's let's work together. Now, Holland's family right now is currently planning a memorial for him. They hope to have that sometime in February. All around the world. As we record this podcast, a black referee is preparing to take charge of an English Premier League football match for the first time in 15 years. Sam Allison will officiate in Sheffield United's game against Luton Town. He's only the second black referee in Premier League history. Our reporter, Nesta McGregor, takes us through the long journey and battle for representation in sport. Let me take you back to August 1997, when the Backstreet Boys were number one. But maybe more importantly, Uriah Reddy became top flight Premier League's first black referee. 
Rodney Hines is co-founder of the Football Blacklist, an organisation that celebrates black excellence in football. Sam Allison's appointment is as seminal as Uriah Rennie's appointment. And the hope has to be that Sam's appointment isn't then a case of we're waiting another 15, 20 years for another black official. I don't think that would be a case. I've got my finger on the pulse within our community and within football generally. And I know there are young, mature, aspiring officials who are capable. And if they get the opportunity, they get the relevant training, they can do a job. But perhaps it isn't for lack of trying. Ashley Hickson Lovins is a level four county referee who dreamed of being a professional footballer. When it was clear that wasn't going to happen, he chose refereeing in order to remain in the sport he loved. Sam Allison's climb to the top for him is bittersweet. First of all, I was absolutely delighted just to see a black man get an appointment in the Premier League. It was also tinged with a, a bit of sadness, I suppose, that it's taken so long because it should be happening more regularly. Marks given by FA-appointed observers is one factor we've been told affects a match official's progression. Referees we spoke to say this grading system could be one reason why some are finding it difficult to climb the ladder. Level four in the refereeing ladder is known as the black man's graveyard. It, and even the connotations of graveyard, you know, is very fitting because it's like the death. And, and for me, reaching level four was the death of my refereeing career because that's as far as I got before I stopped. I was doing everything to come across as professional as I can, especially if I had an observer. And I started to notice sort of certain things and hear certain things that would imply that there was more at play here than just my ability to referee a game of football on the football field. Little comments started to add up. Comments a little about my hair, which was a you know a high top at the time. It's a sort of amalgamation of the comments and the marks and the stories and the anecdotes. Uh, and sometimes that's really hard to articulate as a black person or as a person of colour. It's really hard to put your finger on what it is exactly. You know, I, I can name eight, nine, ten other referees that were coming up through the system as I was at the time and similar stories, similar experiences of being marked down, judged in a sort of very uh, demeaning manner at times. A spokesperson for the FA told us that recruitment, retention and development of referees from all backgrounds is a focal point of their new strategy and they want to ensure that everyone can feel valued and supported at all levels of the game. I think that um, referees are a species that's in trouble, you know, when you look at what they go through at grassroots level. One of the stars of the Premier League at the time was Arsenal striker Ian Wright. So the conveyor belt of people coming through, it has to be made a lot easier for them. We haven't got enough good referees. And if we're just going to restrict it to not letting black referees or Asian referees get in there for whatever reason, and we're going to carry on at the levels what we're seeing now where they're making mistakes left, right and centre, what chance you got? Former England and Arsenal star Ian Wright, ending that report by Nestor McGregor. If I'm a slave, call me a slave. Don't tell me that I'm a free person and I'm still a slave. Yeah, that really lulls me to sleep. You're not really a slave, you know. You're a co-worker. You know, you're a member of the firm, you know. This is the Bodie Plantation. You know, and you are one of our business associates. Now, get that plow moving. <laughs>
Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is facing criticism after failing to mention slavery as a driving force behind the Civil War. This moment came during a presidential campaign stop in New Hampshire yesterday. She was asked about the Civil War by a voter there. NPR's Ashley Lopez is here with more details. Hi, Ashley. Hey there. So, Ashley, let's just start with what happened yesterday. What can you tell us? What exactly did Nikki Haley say? So in a nutshell, Haley was in this town hall style event, and she was taking questions from voters in Berlin, New Hampshire. And during this Q&A portion, one member of the audience simply asked her, what was the cause of the United States Civil War? And here is what Haley said. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. She then got into it a little with that voter. She asked him what he thought the cause of the war was, and he pointed out, like, hey, I'm not running for president. And then she sort of doubled down on her answer. And once she was done, the audience member who asked the original question chimed in and said it was astonishing that she didn't mention slavery once in her answer. And Ashley, this is a moment that's gotten quite a bit of attention since this happened yesterday. What has the response been like? Well, I mean, of course, some of her opponents in the Republican presidential primary have chimed in and mostly pointing at the fact that this looks like a considerable gaffe for her campaign. Donald Trump, who is by far the front runner, his campaign said in a statement that it shows that Haley is, quote, not ready for prime time. And notably, President Biden commented on X, formerly known as Twitter, in response to a video of this exchange. And he said that, yes, the Civil War was indeed about slavery. Okay, and what about Nikki Haley herself? Since yesterday, has she had anything to say about all of this? Yeah, and she's done a couple of interviews since then. During an interview with a local radio station today, she addressed what happened. And here is some of what she said. I mean, of course, the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's, That's the easy part of it. What I was saying was, what does it mean to us today? What it means to us today is about freedom. That's what that was all about. She basically said that, like, it goes without saying that the Civil War was caused by the South's refusal to end slavery. And she says she was mostly commenting on what she felt should be the lessons that should be drawn from the Civil War. And in a more recent campaign stop, she made similar remarks. She's also made some comments that she thinks the person who asked her about the Civil War was a Democratic Party plant, although she hasn't provided any evidence of that. But I'll just say it's a sign that the Haley team knows that this, like, has not been a good look for them. Ashley, I mean, what should we make of the fact that this fairly short exchange that happened in New Hampshire has gotten so much attention? I mean, it seems like it's something that could create some real problems for a campaign that's been on the rise. Yeah. I mean, well, I think a couple of things are happening here. For one, I mean, this is why, as a political candidate, you don't want to make even small mistakes during holidays or other times that the snow, the, the news is comparatively slow, right? A small part of this is really just like bad timing. And speaking of timing, the Iowa caucus is getting very close. It's on January 15th. And then the New Hampshire and then New Hampshire holds its primary soon after that. Right. So this is around the time that candidates are really going to start feeling pressure. Okay, last thing. As I think about this, I wonder how much of this uproar over these comments is just about who Nikki Haley is and her place in this Republican field. Yeah, totally. I think it's really important to note that Nikki Haley is the only woman of the major candidates still vying for the Republican nomination. She's also a woman of color and from the South. Haley has a complicated history when it comes to issues of race. As a woman of color, her campaign has been sort of angling to strike a different tone on on issues of race and identity, especially in comparison to her chief rival in the GOP primary, primary, former President Donald Trump. And she, when she was governor of South Carolina, she had a Confederate flag removed from the Capitol grounds following 
an anti-black mass shooting at a black church in Charleston. But at the same time, you know, we have to remember that she's running for the nomination in a party that has been sounding more like Trump when it comes to issues of race and the country's history with slavery and white supremacy. NPR's Ashley Lopez, thanks as always. Yeah, thank you. You're dirt. We think you're dirt, Paul. Who is we? The West, all the superpowers, everything you believe in, Paul. They think you're dirt. They think you're dumb. You're worthless. I'm afraid I don't understand what you are saying, sir. Oh, come on, don't bullshit me, Paul. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You can own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. You're an African. A new report details how the Wagner Mercenary Group uses gold mining in Africa to funnel money to the Kremlin. According to the Blood Gold Report, Wagner has laundered some 2.5 billion dollars to Russia since its full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year in an effort to support the war effort. And this is all in spite of global sanctions that have shut off the Russian economy from much of the world, or tried to at least. The report was produced by the Consumer Choice Center as well as Democracy 21, a nonprofit that tracks corruption and advocates for government transparency. Jessica Berlin is a co-author of the report. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. When you use the phrase blood gold, uh, tell us what you mean by that. The term blood gold is coined to describe the gold that's being mined and laundered into international markets to finance the Russian state and in turn enable the Russian state to wage its war of aggression on Ukraine, as well as to commit atrocities against people in Syria and across the African continent. So the report focuses on three countries, Sudan, Mali, and the Central African Republic. Wagner has a presence in a number of countries. Why were these three so important for what you were trying to look at here? Well, these countries are where Russia's blood gold trade um, has really taken off. They're the primary targets for Russia's operations in the gold industry. And also they demonstrate very clearly the model of how Wagner operates on the continent and is able to exert increasing economic and political influence there. Tell us about that model. I know it probably differs a little bit from country to country, but there's a typical playbook that we're seeing here. Tell us how it works. For example, in the Central African Republic, um, Wagner has already been collaborating and operating with the regime there since um, 2017. They were given basically exclusive mining rights for the country's largest gold mine in return for propping up the regime there. They're basically what can be considered as a private security company uh, giving the regime both physical and political protection. Mm -hmm. They're targeting opposition groups, um, unleashing a lot of the kind of disinformation and hybrid warfare tactics against opponents and critics of the regime. And this model of going after critics and opposition in defense of the regime, the paying client, then following this up with disinformation, with uh, broad and sophisticated media strategies to spread confusion and fake news mm -hmm. and slander um, against opponents. 
And then lastly, of course, the deployment of Wagner mercenaries against the communities and the opponents of the regime who are standing in their way. And of course, there's been two years of international sanctions on Russia right now. Are current sanctions uh, allegedly trying to address this income stream? What is the state of things right now? What are you seeing? What's working? What's not? In order to reduce Wagner's ability to profit off of gold on the continent, we need to heavily increase the sanctions and how we uh, target the actors involved in the blood gold trade. This means not just going after Wagner on the supply side, but going after the regimes who are contracting them on the demand side. Um, we also need to much more strongly control the supply chains and inflict sanctions on the intermediaries in, for example, Dubai, Hong Kong, the Philippines, who are engaged in the gold laundering, if you will, and, and make it more difficult uh, and expensive for middlemen to have anything to do with Wagner and with Russian gold. That's Jessica Berlin. She co-authored a new report analyzing how the Wagner Group is funding Russia's war effort with billions of dollars in African gold. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Steph Curry, the world's leading expert on cryptocurrency. I'm not. He's not making pasta. He's printing crypto. No. He mines Bitcoin from a giant block of ice. Definitely not. Okay, quit messing around, man. Give me some tips on crypto. No. It's been a wild ride for cryptocurrencies in 2023. One major twist was the conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried on money laundering and fraud charges. He was once one of the biggest names in crypto. Now he might spend the rest of his life in prison. And law enforcement is going after some of his rivals. Despite this crackdown, crypto is staging something of a comeback. NPR's David Gura is here with a look at where things stand in the world of crypto. Hey, David. Hey, Ari. What else shaped this year in crypto? You know, it's been an incredible couple of years. Going back to 2022, I'm sure you remember crypto seemed to be everywhere then. When you're watching TV, there were all these ads for crypto companies. One of the big ones featured Larry David, the comedian. It was for the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, and it aired for the first time during the Super Bowl. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. Well, that line uh, now seems pretty prescient. FTX collapsed spectacularly in November of 2022. Yeah. And this year, it's been going through bankruptcy proceedings. Its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, was found guilty of fraud and money laundering. And this is what U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said outside the federal courthouse in Manhattan after that verdict. The cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. This kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time. And we have no patience for it. You know, this was a pivotal moment in crypto, a dramatic fall from grace for Sam Bankman-Fried, someone who was once called crypto's golden boy. And, you know, a lot of people thought that blockbuster trial, that verdict would shape popular perception of digital currencies, that it would kind of reinforce what law enforcement and regulators have been saying, that this is an industry that's rife with fraud. Well, turns out, Ari, that verdict was not crypto's death knell. Yeah, tell us about what happened. Believe it or not, after that conviction, we saw this huge rally in cryptocurrencies. The price of Bitcoin has tripled this year. It's now above $40,000. Turns out a lot of crypto true believers and Bitcoin investors saw that conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried as a good thing for crypto. A fraudster faced justice and crypto got rid of a bad actor. This year has been a boon to companies that have survived a market downturn that has come to be called a crypto winter. Coinbase, for instance, another big cryptocurrency exchange, has surged in 2023. Its stock is up around 400 percent this year. 
And then there's this hope driving prices higher that the SEC could approve a new ETF. These are funds that track things like a group of stocks or an index. A common one tracks the S&P 500's ups and downs. Well, several companies want to start ETFs that would track the price of Bitcoin. And I asked Kevin Warbach, who's a professor at Wharton, why that would be significant. It would potentially open up the door to lots and lots of people who say, look, I don't buy this entire crypto story, but Bitcoin sounds interesting. And if the SEC approves it, a Bitcoin ETF would be another way into crypto, Ari, and it would also give crypto some more legitimacy. Huh. So where do you think things are headed in 2024? Of course, I don't know for sure. But clearly, if the SEC approves that new investment product, it would be another big moment in crypto's still pretty short history. What we do know is that regulators and law enforcement are going to continue to go after crypto. Just a few weeks after Sam Bankman-Fried was convicted, the Department of Justice announced a major settlement with Binance, which was once one of FTX's competitors, Binance's founder, now former CEO Cheng Peng Zhao, who's better known as CZ, pleaded guilty to violating anti-money laundering laws. So we have two of what were the biggest names in crypto now facing prison time. I asked the acting assistant attorney general, Nicole Argentieri, what law enforcement's approach to crypto is going to be in the new year? And here's what she told me. Thanks for that question. I would say stay tuned, but we expect to continue our robust enforcement. So that means in 2024, there's likely to be more of this tension we've seen this year between crypto trying to stage a comeback and the government continuing this clampdown. Okay, my last question is, why do these crypto titans all go by their initials? SBF, CZ, what's going on? That is a great that's a great question, and it doesn't make it any easier for me to keep track of them. NPR's David Gura. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ari. Let me, yeah. let me catch. You ready? Let me let me bone. Mm-hmm. Solomon Man says Yo. Yo, what's up, son? What's up, kid? What's going on, kid? Yo, man, I'm just doing my thing, man. America runs on credit. I'm not talking about the national debt. I'm talking about the consumer economy that keeps us afloat. Most of it is based on your credit and your ability to obtain credit. That includes credit cards, car loans, mortgages, other means of borrowing money for whatever needs life presents. Like everything, credit comes with a cost, and for individuals, that cost is determined by your credit score. In fact, whether or not you can get credit is determined by that score. Our modern credit score system is the result of a federal law that went into effect in 1970, which aimed to make decisions made by lenders about your creditworthiness less susceptible to human bias. Later, FICO scores would be adopted, and interestingly, one of the men for whom the FICO credit system is named told Congress at the time that he did not believe race, gender, or other social categories should be barred from deciding business credit. And today, many argue that system has put up barriers to credit for women and for people of color. So exactly what is a credit score? How is it determined? What other aspects of your life other than financial can your credit score impact? And what can you do to fight back to change that score? To help us through that discussion, we welcome Ted Rossman, Senior Industry Analyst, specializing in credit cards and credit scores at Bankrate. Good morning to you. Thank you for being here. 
Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Dr. Carly Urban is with us. She is professor of economics at Montana State University and a research fellow at the Institute for the Study of Labor and also a faculty affiliate of the Center for Financial Security at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Good morning to you. Morning. Excited to be here. Well, great. And Frederick Wary is with us. He's professor of sociology at Princeton University and director of the Debt Collection Lab. We'll be talking about that later on in the program. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. And because this kind of debt worthiness, this debt credit checking has been going on for hundreds of years. In 1956, engineer Bill Fair, he's the guy I alluded to a minute ago, and mathematician Eric Isaac started Fair, Isaac, and Company to help businesses use data intelligently, and then they started their first credit scoring system a couple of years later. FICO is an abbreviation for Fair Isaac Corporation, and we'll talk about FICO a little bit later on. In, in, in 1970, as I said, the government passed its Fair Credit Reporting Act to grant consumers a, a higher level of protection and the right to know uh, and correct their credit reports. So, Ted, what was the impetus for that law? Why did that law pass? Well, credit is really important in your financial life. I would argue that your credit score is is one of the most important numbers just because it goes a really long way toward determining whether or not you're approved for loans and lines of credit and the interest rate that you'll pay. So bringing more regulation to this space is one, acknowledging just how important it is because everybody at some point is going to need something like a mortgage or a car loan or a credit card or quite possibly all three but also hopefully taking bias out of the system because at least explicitly race, gender, age, they don't matter in the credit scoring system. Now, unfortunately, there has been implicit bias throughout the decades, um, but this is an effort to put everybody on a fair footing, I would say. Because hundreds of years ago, it was anecdotal. Your credit references were anecdotal, and they were based on your character as a person for what, how you lived your life, et cetera. And this was a, and, and, and then as, as things became more geared toward capitalism and the industrial society that we have become, they tried to make it more fair and more accurate. Did FICO and the Fair Credit Reporting Act result in things becoming fairer for all, Ted? I think so. I mean, I think that your credit score can really be thought of as kind of a financial report card of sorts. It's kind of like standardized testing in academia. I mean, some say that that's not a perfect system. But as you said, the ad hoc anecdotal sort of, you know, leave it up to everybody individually is not a great answer either. You know, you could have lenders that unfortunately are are biased. So, No system is perfect, but I think that FICO has proven to be very predictive. This is the dominant credit scoring method by a wide margin. About nine in 10 lending decisions involve a FICO score, and it really is supposed to rank order customers and basically predict how likely you are to pay your bills back. So it's proven to be an incredibly useful tool for lenders. All the big banks and mortgage lenders use these scores. And uh, it's just really important to everybody's financial life. Hey, Frederick, tell me how this works, because FICO, the FICO score is used by the big three, Experian, uh, Equifax, and TransUnion, and probably others along the way to determine whether or not you're going to get a loan. And if you get that loan, what the interest rate will be and how much money you can get, because that's based on your credit score. How does that original FICO score come to be? 
So uh, one of the things to to keep in mind is um, if you're someone like William Fair, uh, your approach to developing uh, a score, a reliable score, something that's predictive, is let's get as much information about individuals as we can so that we can make the most accurate predictions. Uh, and uh, one of the challenges with this, of course, is that uh, it was information that for, for FAIR would go beyond uh, behaviors. And so I think there's a lot of agreement that, yes, we actually do want to know what someone's credit relevant behaviors have been, because that's really predictive of what they'll do in the future uh, if extended credit. Um, but there are other things about a person's life that has nothing to do with behavior. And so, you know, we, we often use that phrase, uh, we care about the content of a, a person's character in the context of uh, credit, you, you don't see the content of character, but you, you can see behaviors. And this is why there was a sort of a big push to say, um, your race, your religion, your, uh, your uh, other things that are traits that have nothing to do with your behaviors, those should be off the table, but for for but but there was pushback, of course, uh, and 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 a sense that information is information, and we should just put whatever we have in, into this into uh, our models. I think what we're hitting on here is this new field of alternative credit management, things like Experian Boost, which are starting to bring in some of these newer programs. So that would be streaming services, for example. Or some of them are even old things that haven't always counted. Utility payments, rent. Um, another new one is buy now, pay later. That whole class of lending like Affirm and Afterpay and Klarna, the whole pay in four kind of thing. All of this has not traditionally counted. So the basics of a FICO score are basically, do you pay your traditional loans on time? Do you pay your credit card, your mortgage, your car loan? They definitely know your payment history on that. Mm -hmm. And they know, as you said, Mike, they know, you know, how much you owe and how long you've had the account. And I think one of the holes in this system is it doesn't capture everything. So this whole initiative to include more open banking and look at your bank history, that would include some other things. Most rent payments are not reported to credit bureaus because they're not true loans. But you could argue that it's your biggest bill. I mean, it should count as much as a mortgage. So th there's more of a movement through services like Experian Boost and eCredible Lyft to pull in utilities, streaming, rent, buy now, pay later, things like that. And, and Frederick, uh, Frederick, I was going to talk about this later, but we'll talk about it now since it's come up. And, and that is the fact that this is where it really hurts the least among us, because poorer people don't have mortgage payments, but they do make rent payments. Poorer people prepay their cell phone bill and they do it on time. Poorer people have, uh, have to pay utilities. And you're telling me that none of this counts in your credit score, but it really should because that tells you whether or not you are a responsible person, correct? Uh, yes, yes. So, um, so I think one of the things that we sometimes forget is that when we're pulling together things like uh, our credit score, uh, you're trying to pull together information from disparate sources that's allowed by uh, federal regulations. Uh, and so there are some things that are that you have to get a congressional fix to include in, in the scoring. Um, and so that's why you had some movement in Congress to kind of sort of open up of what else we could put into those scores. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the other thing to keep in mind, um, and 
is that, you know, we, the people who are building these um, instruments, uh, we try to sort of be open about everyone out who's in the world, but we're building them based on people we know. Uh, and that's where, and so sometimes we forget that the, the least of uh, these are among us. I was going to ask if you're in that low category of 630 or something like that, where, where it's difficult to get a loan or the interest rates are going to be astronomically high because you're not a, a good risk in their opinion. Uh, what have you done to deserve that? What kind of behavior have you engaged in that has resulted in that credit score? Uh, Frederick, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say there are some other things that uh, people who are in that low category um, aren't doing, um, uh, but that affects them. And so one of the things that they're not doing is they're, they're not making decisions about sort of how the labor market operates. And so if you are in a category where you are the last hired and first fired, um, uh, then your employment history is going to look different. Even if it, even if, you know, as soon as you get fired, you're looking for another job and you, and you've got other, and you're still managing to keep your bills up and paid, that's going to affect you. And that, and, and the fact that you're last hired or first fired might have much more to do with our sort of history of uh, racial inequality in the U.S. Um, the other thing that you, you don't do is you, is you, you don't really sort of assess the value of, uh, of the properties in which you live. And so one of the things that's sort of been coming out of late is the way that um, appraisals are done on homes. And if you're in a, in a home uh, that's in a, a uh, large majority black neighborhood, even if the home has similar characteristics as homes in a majority white neighborhood, it's not going to appreciate as fast. Um, and so all of these are things that are going to affect sort of your, um, the, the types of assets that you have, the types of opportunities that you have, and the way that you're going to show up in a, in a, in a credit history. Uh, go ahead, uh, Carly. Yeah, I think the other thing to add on to that would be there are certain people with thin files that have a lot of trouble doing any of the things that Ted recommended. So young people, for example, um, if they you know haven't had something that is co-owned with their parent at any point in time, then they're going to start their their financial journey a little bit later and on different footing, and they're not necessarily going to have access to credit. So if they make one mistake, if they miss one dentist bill that they didn't see because they were moving around and that goes into collections, they're starting out with this terrible credit score that's going to be really hard to kind of overcome that and get to a better place. Um, and the same thing could be told for immigrants, right, who have almost no access to credit. Um, so we have to think about groups that are, you know, really harmed by this like, need for the history component. Uh, back in school, and I went to Catholic school when I was in grade school, uh, you were always threatened by the nuns that if you did something wrong, it was going to go on your permanent record. That proved to be nonsense, but when it comes to credit scores, it is not. They travel with you through life. And in a recent article in Fortune magazine by uh, Bernice King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, daughter, she describes the system this way. She says, after decades of unchecked influence creep, credit scores, a pseudo-scientific Amalgam of risk factors calculated by a handful of private companies now impact virtually every aspect of modern life, often for the worst. Your credit score is the shadow you never asked for and cannot outrun. Frederick, do you agree with that description? 
so I understand the description. Um, I the so to be fair to the to the uh, the people who create these tools, um, it's not that it's not a pseudoscience. It's uh, it's an attempt uh, to make prediction. The problem that she points out is you have something that is privately held. It has a huge impact on your life and it follows you. And that raises the question of, is there enough transparency? Is there enough accountability in the system that I can trust that the number that's being assigned to me is fair? And if it's if it's somehow not fair, that I have some kind of recourse. Um, and right now, what, what you're hearing from, uh, from uh, Reverend King is not transparent, not a whole lot of opportunities for accountability, particularly for those who are um, most uh, negatively affected. Um, and there's not a sense that, that you uh, can speak back uh, to these uh, credit scoring agencies. They're privately held. Although, Carly, these credit scoring devices are probably fairer and less biased than what has preceded them in the centuries gone by and even in the 20th century, uh, there is still bias in these. And as uh, Frederick Rory pointed out a moment ago, that if you have a perfectly fine house, but it just happens to be in the wrong area of town, that's not going to benefit you as much as it would if you were in a better area of town. But some of these credit scores do reflect, in fact, your lack of payment on time or the, the fact that you defaulted on something. That makes you riskier. Uh, your, your credit riskability, if that's a word, is, is higher. So isn't there a price to pay for not doing the right thing, not keeping up with your bills? Shouldn't there be? Oh, absolutely. I think there should be a – I mean, that's, that's a market, right? That's like you're riskier, lenders are – are then like pricing products based on your risk. There's actually a whole separate uh, credit score um, called cl the Clarity um, that is used for alternative financial services, where they're even kind of you know using making their own scoring mechanism for payday loans and things like that that are much higher interest rates, but for people that the market deems risky, such that we still need lenders potentially in the market that will lend in those emergency situations. Now they're not obviously. They're contentious for other reasons, right? But uh, scoring is a way of pricing, absolutely. I think where we run into trouble is um, the element of the score that does rely on this history, right? So if you are a relatively newer person, there's no way to prove yourself. And then the second place is if you make a mistake and that mistake can stay with you for a really long time and that mistake can be pretty benign, right? You can not pay your cable bill um, and, you know, just kind of miss something. And, and that could be the first thing. That could be the reason you have a credit file. And then you're in a lot of trouble. Uh, Ted, uh, Frederick has said that, and he's alluded to this in this conversation already, that, em that employment disruptions can factor into to credit scores. And that affects more Black and Latino people than it does white folks and Asians. Uh, the, that's fact, that the, the fact that you have a disruption in your employment is factored into your uh, credit scores, and it's uh, sometimes you're not you're not it's not your fault. Uh, the company laid everybody off, or or whatever. But that's not taken into account. Why? Employment status is not explicitly included in the FICO score, but it is the biggest predictor of whether or not you can pay 
bills on time. So it's definitely related in that sense. You won't literally see an inclusion in your score about your, your employment status or, or even things like your income or net worth. I think sometimes people think these things count. Really what ultimately matters is how you manage your finances. So you could have a big salary and a terrible credit score if you're paying late and running up too much debt. Conversely, you could have a much lower income and have a very good credit score. That's kind of the idealistic take, but it is possible. I mean, I do think we need to acknowledge that there is sometimes implicit bias in some of this, that you know, even if your net worth or your income or your job status is not literally included, it is probably related to some of these other factors, such as being able to keep up with the bills and access to credit and, and things like that. And the Government Accounting Office, the GAO, released a study in late October about credit card use hitting record highs, and they specifically looked at race-related differences in credit limits, debt levels, and interest rates for credit cards. It found that cardholders in majority black and Hispanic zip codes had worse credit terms than those in white neighborhoods. Their credit limits were lower. Their interest rates were higher. The government knows this, and this goes against the Fair Credit Reporting Act, one would think, so is it going to take the government to fix it because we're not going to be able to depend on individual corporations or credit reporting bureaus to do it, Ted, and I have 30 seconds? It's such a complicated issue. I mean, there's not supposed to be explicit bias in the system. Unfortunately, there probably are some aspects of implicit bias that have maybe been handed through the generations, and I think that's harder to solve. Read up on this. It's important. It will follow you through life. I wish we had more time to talk about how we get educated if we're not in high school about financial literacy, but we don't. Ted Rossman, Senior Industry Analyst with Bankrate. Dr. Carly Urban, Professor of Economics at uh, Montana State University. And Frederick Wery, Professor of Sociology at Princeton University, Director of their Debt Collection Lab. Thank you all. that you just kind of know? You sing along without even thinking about the lyrics? We're going to explore the history of one of those songs this morning. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. The song was first performed on New Year's Day, 1773, over 250 years ago. NPR's Samantha Balaban is our guide through its extraordinary history. This history begins with an unlikely author. John Newton was a strange mix of uh, 
a person. James Walvin is a historian and the author of the new book, Amazing Grace, a cultural history of a beloved hymn. His favorite version is the one you're hearing now. It's hard not to listen to Paul Robeson singing Amazing Grace and not feel the back of the, the neck tingle. But he digresses. Back to John Newton. Here is a man of God who writes a very godly hymn, but who actually was engaged in the most barbaric of personal behavior. John Newton was a slave trader. He trafficked enslaved Africans to the Americas. We know that he tortured slaves, tortured Africans on, on board the slave ships. On one voyage, Newton's ship was caught in a storm. He made it home, but barely. The Lord had saved him by his grace. And that's the origins, really, of his ideas that went into amazing grace. Newton gave up slave trading. He became a parish rector and started writing hymns. In December 1772, he wrote Hymn 41. He wrote the words. The music comes later. There's no way of knowing what that first New Year's Day performance of Newton's hymn would have sounded like. But maybe something like... This is the English Chamber Choir performing Amazing Grace to Tune 14, a tune attached to Newton's words in an early hymn book. James Walvin says Amazing Grace never really gained a foothold in Newton's England. But then it was published in America, where Christianity was booming. In the United States, you have this kind of proliferation of nonconformist groups, of Methodists, of Baptists, and, and sects that spin out from those. And all of them, all of them sing. But still, no one could agree on a tune. Enter William Walker, otherwise known as Singin' Billy. A singing master, one of many who wandered around the early United States teaching people to sing, individually and collectively. Walker took Newton's hymn and paired it with a tune called New Britain. At this point, Amazing Grace starts to sound familiar. This is the first recording of Amazing Grace to the tune of New Britain, performed in 1922 by the original Sacred Harp Choir. Newton died long before he would have been able to hear this version of his hymn, but he probably still would have recognized it. What Newton wrote in the 1770s is still what we sing today. It gives you some indication of how how popular it was. In the 1930s, the Library of Congress commissioned John Lomax, his wife Ruby, and his son Alan to travel around the American South, making recordings for the Archive of American Folk Song. They found people singing Amazing Grace in Texas and in Alabama. They found that people sang Amazing Grace scattered across the United States in the most extraordinarily remote places, uh, black and white, rich and poor, individual, old people in their homes, these crackly old American voices of all kinds of regional accents, 
all singing Amazing Grace. I don't know that we know exactly when it was first sung in a black church, but we know that hymns have been a major aspect of religious worship for African Americans. Melvin Butler is an associate professor of musicology at the University of Miami. People often kind of make a big deal out of the fact that the composer of the hymn was a former slave trader. But for African Americans, it's a pro-underdog song. You know, those who have been downtrodden and oppressed, you find salvation in this idea that no matter what you're going through, no matter who calls you a wretch, you have this amazing grace to rely on. Reginald Golding, the music director of the Howard Gospel Choir at Howard University, says it's not surprising then that Amazing Grace would become a staple of the civil rights movement. When you study and look at the music of the civil rights movement, they were minded to sing songs that people would have difficulty arguing with from a lyrical standpoint. Who could argue, for example, with the great gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson? Jackson met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1956. She sang in Selma and at the March on Washington. And she even sang Amazing Grace to King over the phone at night to calm him down at the end of a long day. The song was becoming known as a balm for troubled times. And that was never more apparent than during the Vietnam War era. I'm Judy Collins, and I'm a singer, songwriter, poet. Back in 1969, Collins was part of a group of people discussing the war in New York City. Her producer, Mark Abramson, made a suggestion. He said, you know, I think you should sing something because everybody's sort of frothing at the mouth here and something could break out that's physical. So I sang Amazing Grace because... I knew that everybody would know a little bit of the song, and it calmed everybody down. And the next morning, Mark called me and said, you know, we've got to record this. Amazing Grace. Judy Collins recorded this version of Amazing Grace at St. Paul's Cathedral at Columbia University for her 1970 album, Wales and Nightingales. It's an incantation. And at least in those moments when we're singing together, we're really together. We have no argument. We have no dissent. And that's the strength of it. And that's why I think when my version of it came out and it was a, an a cappella choir singing together, it really rang a bell with people all over the world. It was also a huge commercial success, and it would quickly be followed by another. The next song needs no introduction. In 1972, the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, recorded her version at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. It's the same song, but transformed in the African-American tradition, says Melvin Butler. Even the first syllable is almost a full 10 seconds long. And then it's like almost a whole minute before she gets through the phrase, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. 
because she's interjecting moans and she's using what we call melisma, you know, multiple pitches on a single syllable. It's one of the through lines between the blues and gospel music, right? This idea of, you know, telling a story but moaning. You know, you're expressing heartache on some level, but you're capturing something that the words can't express. A lot of times in black churches, you'll hear people even interject or shout out, take your time. You know, they're encouraging this kind of individuality in performance. And it's become one of the hallmarks of this song in particular, whether it's Diana Ross or Jennifer Hudson and certainly Aretha Franklin. And even Barack Obama's <laughs> performance demonstrates some of this. That's what I felt this week, an open heart. In 2015, black worshipers were targeted because of their race. Nine people were murdered during Bible study at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. President Barack Obama flew to South Carolina to deliver the eulogy for Pastor Clemente Pinckney. If we can tap that grace, everything can change. Author James Walvin says it was this moment that made him want to write a book about the song. Amazing grace. As he spoke, he stopped. Amazing grace. Waited a second and then began to sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Musicologist Melvin Butler. Obama's not, I don't think he would say he's a, a virtuosic vocalist, but if you listen to those first few phrases, he does sort of inject a bit of blues sensibility into that song. There's a little bit of a moan, and it's like this is, this is Obama saying, I'm one of you. For me, personally, it was a beautiful moment, and I think it'll go down in history. The history of Amazing Grace is already full of remarkable moments, but here's just one more. In 1971, inspired by the commercial success of Judy Collins' single, the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards recorded a bagpipe version. Amazing Grace had never really been recorded this way, without lyrics, says James Walvin, author of Amazing Grace, A Cultural History of a Beloved Hymn. And thereafter, the kind of haunting refrain of pipers playing Amazing Grace becomes a theme that people want to use at funerals. It's since played at events marking September 11th, after the Oklahoma City bombing, at presidential funerals, regular funerals, and to honor the memory of firefighters at the Fireman's Memorial in New York City, located right down the street from where Judy Collins lives. And every year, thousands of firefighters come to the Upper West Side and they circle that monument and they sing Amazing Grace. And I can hear it in my home. And I go out on the street and I go down to join their crowd and listen to them sing Amazing Grace. That's what moves me the most. For a song with a 250-year history, the beauty of Amazing Grace is its ability to shapeshift. It's a religious text, or not. It's a hymn, or a gospel song, or a folk song. It spurs protesters to march forward, or calms an angry crowd. It's a song of hope, or mourning, or celebration. It's a song you can sing with others, 
or listen to in the quiet of your own home. Samantha Balaban, NPR News. There'll be co-workers, you know, work side by side. And all of us working together, we can get it done. Could have told Indians that. Same thing. Some of them did start off with, but then they got attitude. Say, no, we're going to take it all. We ain't going to leave you nothing. (laughs) Indian said, well, you know, I thought we were going to share. I mean, you know, that's what we sat down at Thanksgiving, I mean, you know, and say we all work together and all like that. Well, I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) I think I need to. I think what I need to do is going back to giving you a good whipping sheet. That's all it was. <laughs> mm. Chief said, there's plenty of land here for everybody. We got more land than we can take care of and whatnot. So, I mean, we welcome you and all like that. Well, no, I'm going to take it all. <laughs> Give you a bottle of whiskey. That's what you're going to get out of the deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. And that's wow. what they did. And they admit that they did it. They wrote books about it, bragged about it. Yeah, how many Indians were killed today, you know? Only good Indians are dead Indians. We have an update to a story that we've been following for several months. The Department of the Interior updated the rules for repatriation of indigenous remains from museums and federal agencies. BPR spoke to the Eastern Band of Cherokee's Tribal Historic Preservation Office about what the new rules mean. More than 200,000 human remains sit in collections at museums and institutions across the country. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Frozen femurs in the freezer. Uh, Jeffrey Dom. Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. More than 200,000 human remains sit in collections at museums and institutions across the country. These indigenous remains were supposed to be returned to tribes and native groups after the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was passed by Congress in 1990. But more than three decades later, only about half have been made available for return to tribes, ProPublica reported earlier this year. Miranda Panther is the NAGPRA officer for the Tribal Historic Preservation Office for the Eastern Band of Cherokee. The new regulations will require an inventory of items to be repatriated, increased tribal consent in research projects, and removes previous loopholes, Panther says. We've always held graves or cemeteries to be of sacred value. And just because native graves aren't marked in a traditional Western way doesn't mean that they're any less sacred. The push for new regulations has been ongoing. In 2010, the Department of the Interior released some updates, Panther said, but the timelines for repatriation and a high bar for cultural affiliation 
all made the process tedious and sometimes impossible. That term, cultural affiliation, is a loophole that has allowed museums and institutions to keep remains, Panther says. The new law says that Aboriginal tribes can receive the remains and that tribal experts' testimony will be respected as scientific evidence. That culturally unaffiliated distinction will impact institutions like the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. VPR previously reported that more than 600 indigenous remains at UNC had not been made available for return to tribes. Every one of those remains, UNC told VPR, are considered culturally unaffiliated. So I'm glad that, you know, we'll have a stronger process, stronger right to be able to claim those collections. And they're not just languishing on shelves for many more decades after. The new regulations also provide a step-by-step roadmap with specific timelines for museums and federal agencies to facilitate disposition or repatriation. For example, when an institution receives a repatriation request, it must now respond in at least 90 days. If it doesn't, there are potential civil penalties. They need to know that there's an end date that they can't just continue to hold on to people or objects. Researchers who hold these collections or are working on a project will now also need prior informed tribal consent before working with a collection. Panther says this is important and that the EBCI does not grant any destructive testing. This research can give scientists insights into the diets, ages, and genetics of ancient populations, but destroys small portions of bone, ProPublica reported. The new regulations also require a new inventory of the human remains and belongings of indigenous ancestors and burial items to identify those that might be repatriated. Institutions will have five years to update those inventories and publish them in the Federal Register. Failure to do so could result in civil penalties. These rules become effective January 12, 2024. I'm Lily Knepp, VPR News. We do things that have never been done, and that makes people uncomfortable. When you see a, a confident black man sitting up and talking his talk, walking his walk, coaching 75% African-Americans in the locker room, that's kind of threatening. Oh, they don't like that. But guess what? We're going to consistently do what we do. Because I'm here and ain't going nowhere. And I'm about to get comfortable in a minute. I'm about to get comfortable in a minute. We're continuing our talk today about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion at the University of Colorado Boulder. And in light of the attention lately on CU Buffs coach Deion Sanders, a.k.a. Coach Prime, what it's like being Black on the CU Boulder campus. Our next guest knows a lot about this topic. She's an alum, a longtime supporter of the school, yes, totally diehard, and is now serving as CU's first Black woman regent in 44 years. While campaigning for the position, and even since taking on the role, she's made it quite clear that one of her objectives is to help make the university more inclusive. Wanda James, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is an exciting conversation. So I have to ask, Mm -hmm. what has it been like for you to watch the so-called prime effect sweeping the nation? Wow. There is a amazing sense of pride. I kind of want to jump in, right? Because I just got back from the CU versus UCLA game in Los Angeles. Mm. 
and honestly, never seen anything like it. So, you know, obviously we have a smaller part of the Rose Bowl where we were playing. And I would say that the CU portion of the Rose Bowl was 45% black Hmm. with people wearing all the prime gear, all Hmm. the CU gear. I mean, in 40 years, I have never seen anything like this. Wow. Wow. Now, you've been very vocal about how great you personally think CU Boulder is, which you often refer to as the Harvard of the Rockies. I do. (laughs) What was your experience like as a Black student, and how would you say it has evolved over time? So, you know, you can talk to generations of Black alumna, and the story for, I would say, 98% of them is probably about the same. Mm. Um, For me, when I was there, it was a little bit different because I was part of the Naval ROTC Mm -hmm. structure there. So what Naval ROTC did for me was it took me out of a school of 30,000 students and people Mm. and brought me into a you know, smaller, tight-knit family of, I don't know how many midshipmen we had at the time, 100, 150, 200, um, with a dedicated staff of people whose it was in their best interest to ensure you graduated. Mm -hmm. So it was a very different experience than just being left on this campus, you know, to deal with all the things I think students deal with. That being said, I was still the only black person in Naval ROTC. And I joined the military at the time because so many of my black friends did not come back to school in 1982 after our first year. So it felt pretty lonely. And so the military was something that was um, known to me. So I was comfortable there. But if you ask generations of black students going to the University of Colorado, yeah, it's a lonely place. A lot of them were met with straight up racism. We have, you know, conversations that have been had that the chief of police at the time in Boulder went and took the football roster and said he was going to use this for identification for people. (laughs) So, I mean, there was that kind of ridiculousness happening on campus back in the, you know, mid to late 80s and probably in the 60s and the 70s as well. So what has the evolution done? Probably not a lot until this year. Really? Really. Now, you said that you genuinely don't understand why more people of color don't choose to attend. Yeah. But as you've reflected on that, why do you think it's that way now? I believe that the reason that we have not seen a lot of blacks and Latinos at the University of Colorado, one, is a belief that most families can't afford it. People believe that it's one of the more expensive schools in Colorado, so they don't even apply. Secondly, I believe being located in Boulder, Colorado, the idea of what people have of Boulder, Colorado, is that it is unwelcoming to people of color, which it is. (laughs) I mean, Boulder has, you know, while it's a liberal city, it's a very wealthy city. And I think that it is, I believe that the people in Boulder believe that they are welcoming and that they don't understand what they do to make people of color feel unwelcome there. In a lot of cases, in some cases, I'm sure that they do. Now, I have to ask, what do you think people are doing that they may, in your view, may unconsciously be doing that is not welcoming to Black and Latino students? Oh, I mean, it's it's easy. I mean, there's really, because of the low numbers, there's really nowhere you can go in the city of Boulder where you are met with, you know, people that look like you. So it does feel very unwelcoming. Um, It does feel unwelcoming in the hotels. It does feel unwelcoming in the restaurants. It definitively is a rich white society in Boulder. And that feeling is permeated, I think, through the activities that are there, through 
who gets hired in service um, mm-hmm. roles, you know, just who you see in Boulder. And you just don't see a lot of diversity in Boulder at all. Well, of course, Coach Prime came from the Deep South yep. up to Boulder. Yep. And there's been a lot of talk about Black culture. Like, yep. I- I've heard mm-hmm. that clubs are playing more different music. I've heard about certain cuisines being offered mm-hmm. at the restaurant. Got, so, grit, got grits, girl. Sure. <laughs> the grits, yes. So I'm asking, like, mm-hmm. is it that you feel that people aren't not welcoming, but it's more like there aren't... I guess the offerings do not reflect being inclusive, like music or, like you said, type of events and that type of thing. 100 percent. I mean, I, I don't know that this is entirely true any longer, but, you know, I mean, the, the joke has always been you can't get your hair done in Boulder. Right. So, you know, you have a town of, you know, 65, 70,000 people and there is nobody to cut your hair. So everybody's driving to Denver. So everybody is driving to Denver. So it's those types of things, you know, that we just don't see in Boulder. Now, that being said, what happens when you're able to bring on, and I don't know what this Coach Prime effect is in in sociological terms, right? Because it has definitively changed, um, like you said, the music scene. People are looking at, you know, different types of food. And once again, too, you've got to understand it's not just Coach Prime that came to Boulder, Right. It's Coach Prime's coaching staff. The machine of Coach Prime. Exactly, which is their family and their significant others and their children, right? So, you know, <laughs> the black population in Boulder, you know, I don't know, quadrupled in, in the last year probably, right? <laughs> With Coach Prime. With Coach Prime, <laughs> right, you, you know. Um, so when you look at what's happening with Coach Prime right now, for every CU home game, they're looking at $20 million to the city of Boulder. Wow. Money, 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 money. You know, and that's the parking lots are packed. The restaurants are packed. Fast food is packed. You know, people are coming. The hotels are packed. So it's amazing. And it's bringing people of color. The USC game brought people of color. You know, homecoming, I'm hearing so many alums saying that they're coming back this year, black alums saying that they're coming back this year. So there is a phenomenon that's happening that's bringing people there. And once again, when you see more people that look like you, you feel more comfortable in a place. So my assumption is people are feeling more accepted in Boulder right now. Well, I find that interesting because here at Colorado Matters, we covered the opening of the cause, which is CU Boulder's Center mm-hmm. for African and African American Studies. And uh, the head of that, Dr. Rabaka, mentioned in raising funds for that program, they reached out, of course, to many Black alums who said, why would I give money to a school that was so unwelcoming and unsupportive to me? Exactly. And like I said, I think if you talk to generations of Black alums, you will hear that time and time and time again. That has definitively been a feel at CU Boulder for generations, not for the last 10 years, the last 20 years, but for generations um, of CU alums. Once again, we're hoping that this prime effect, for lack of a better word, is something that actually brings us all back. Because here's the thing. There are a good number of Black alums from CU Boulder. Uh, I know a few myself. Absolutely. You know, and so if we make an effort to come back and come back in numbers and in mass, you know, we'll see each other. We'll run into each other. And quite frankly, that's what's been happening at the football games. I ran into Jay Humphreys at one of the games. I ran into Albus Brooks at one of the games. You know, you're just running into Randall Walter Stanley at one of the games. You're running into people that you haven't seen 
in decades. Wow. And so they're all coming back. We're having fun. And um, I think it could be a new resurgence for, for A, people of color, for black alums, and more importantly, to also start to attract more staff and faculty of color. So mm. black, and, black and Latino. New York. New York. New York. But first at 11 o'clock, we're following a developing story. Late details coming out in court in Manhattan for the man charged with attacking two teenage sisters at Grand Central Terminal. This as they were visiting New York City. And we're now learning just how seriously hurt one sister is. I want to reporter Sonia Rincon here now with the new information. Sonia. Well, Bill, we're learning more about that suspect's violent past, which included 17 prior arrests and a lot of erratic behavior. The NYPD considered him to be emotionally disturbed. Tonight at Manhattan Criminal Court, 36-year-old Stephen Hutcherson of the Bronx was charged with attempted murder as a hate crime. Two counts for the two teenage tourists from Paraguay. He's accused of stabbing at the Grand Central Terminal Food Court hate crimes because he was heard saying, I want all the white people dead. He also faces multiple counts of assault as a hate crime and endangering the welfare of a child. Court documents say he pulled out a knife and stabbed a 16-year-old girl in the back as she was sitting with her family at Tartinery on Christmas Day and then stabbed her 14-year-old sister in the leg. Hudson had that long history of arrests, the latest just last month for threatening someone with a knife for which he pleaded guilty, and he was apparently living inside Grand Central Terminal. Mayor Adams today pointed to a drop in subway crime, saying he continues to prioritize removing the mentally ill from the transit system. Anytime you have incidents in these high-profile locations, it sends the feeling of, you know, people don't feel safe, and that's why we have to make sure we, you know, zero in, make the arrests as soon as possible. Uh, and make sure we get those repeated offenders off our streets. The two teen sisters from Paraguay who were here in town for the holidays with their family are still recovering at Bellevue Hospital tonight. The 16-year-old is being treated for a collapsed lung. Bill? All right, Sonia, thank you for that. We're Global system of white supremacy racism. Are these individuals classified as white? That's what I was, you know, trying to go and investigate as we were preparing to speak context of white supremacy gusty renegade undignified in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy with non-white people victims of racism today's date saturday the last saturday of the calendar year penultimate day of 2023 Saturday, December 20, excuse me, 30th, 2023. So I have been told our 212th program of the calendar year, much better than every other day rate of broadcasting for the context of white supremacy. And if I had not got sick in October, Easily, I think we would have done probably closer to about 220 programs, but that is health. Taking care of yourself is a major aspect of counter racism. Take care of yourself. Eat well. Anywho, but 212 programs. Hopefully we have been worthy of your time and energy, not wasting time and in quarreling with non-white people, but making an effort to learn share constructive information to help victims of racism 
better understand the world in which we live and use that information to replace white supremacy with justice immediately ASAP. You can access those 212 programs from this calendar year and the thousands literally of programs that we have done in our 15 year history easily. Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Podchaser, Podbean, uh, Blueberry, trying to think there, bunches that I miss any, Spotify Music, Amazon Music, probably a few more, but those are some of the main outlets where you can access the cows archives. White people, race soldiers have sabotaged our archives for the entire 15 years. So it is a chore to have to upload and re-upload programs repeatedly uh, sometimes when they corrupt the uh, files and that sort of thing. But do as best we can. Let us know. I know still have to get the entire uh, broadcast for Madiba's long walk to freedom in our book study, but, and a number of other programs, but I mean, Hey, 2000 is a lot to manage 2000 plus. Actually, there should be more than enough to get you started though. Apple podcasts, YouTube, Podbean, Podchaser, Spotify, Amazon music, share the archives. If you think it is constructive, we will be on on Tuesday. Now, our normal broadcast time is 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The Cows has been broadcasting for 15 years consecutively. We didn't take a year off, sabbatical, do something else, experiment with cotton candy and all that, join the circus for a little while. We didn't do that. Been here 15 years, no breaks. For a good decade, we've been on at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. It is amazing. Lack of a better term. Curious. Many people still articulate confusion. What time does the program? Always 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The only exceptions I've said for years when we have guests on from different parts of the world. That is about to happen this week. Kick off the new year for a program I had kind of been looking forward to. White women do it better. Uh, but Wednesday early guest on from the other side of the planet so early is three and I you know I always hate for me anything where we have to be on a.m. side oh, oh. 3 p.m. Eastern 12 noon Pacific which is pretty much morning it's just switching to p.m. that's morning Ugh. Uh, but that's Wednesday guest on white guest from different uh, part of the universe and white women do it better talking about slavery just in the report and all and they always talk white men white women you can't have a plantation without white women early on Wednesday 3 p.m. Eastern 12 noon Pacific 
Okie dokie. We had a uh, listener. She wrote in, black female, asking for input doing house purchasing. We heard all that about credit scores, which I thought was fascinating. But we had a listener requesting input about purchasing a house. So listen up. Don't be a spectator, especially if you've done house purchasing of late. Share your thoughts. So this is what she wrote in. Greetings, Gus. I'm in the process of potentially purchasing a property. Did you see that alliteration? She wanted me to drop all those P's flawlessly. I went to see a property Saturday, and when I got there, the area was very quiet. You would not even know the housing development was there unless you had a reason to go there. Although this is the case, once you leave out of the neighborhood, you are not far within one to two miles of shopping, schools, and businesses. Anywho, I'm waiting for the realtor. He arrives and we wait outside a few minutes until he finds the key code. I turn around to further survey my surroundings brilliant and directly across the street was a huge confederate flag racist banner hanging in a front window that's interesting they normally have it outside the house right this is in the inside the house at least it sounds like i really like this place it is fully remodeled and at the best price point for the area for me which is very rare, and it is close to the clinic where I am employed. Big bonus. But I've been thinking about how much should I take into consider- uh, consideration residing across the street from an overt racist's display from the point of view of potential safety and possible terrorizing situations. I know that I am safe nowhere on this planet or from the terror of racists with or without the racist banner on display but tragically I do have to consider it I said all that to ask if you had any thoughts you might like to share and any counter racist suggestions regarding this situation question more directly I want to know if you yourself would purchase under similar circumstances question I really want to try this property but Racism, like everything else, is making this a difficult decision that will be a refrain until we solve the problem. Capital T, capital P. It may be very unlikely for me to find a property like this anytime soon that financially fits my budget and is in a quiet, well-kept, and so-called safe area of town with lots of accommodations that are not far to drive to. I've been looking already for months, and this is the first place in my price point that isn't an overpriced trashy property or an overpriced property that needs lots of work, thus more money needing to be put into it. Housing has always been difficult for non-white people, black people, but it seems like racists are determined as of late to have more non-white people, black people, staying outside in their cars or under bridges than in any enclosed climate-controlled dwelling. Between the overpricing, the extreme interest rates, the excessive 
uh, homeowners association fees and the increasingly difficult loan and even rental qualifications are making trying to find quality housing even more terrorizing. Didn't I just say we had that about the credit report and yeah, racism? Yeah. I have read James Lowen's Sundown Towns, and I do remember the racists burning down their own apartment building to keep the Negroes from moving in, so I know that under the conditions of white domination, I cannot afford to overlook anything. This is a predominantly all-white housing development, but it's hard to get specific info on this because of their Fair Housing Act. Realtors can't answer that question for you. But from my research on the demographics of the area in general, from driving around the two to three mile radius of the area several times, and from sitting parked in my car for a while ahead of the realtor arriving, it appears to be a mostly white subdivision, although I did see one black female walking to take the trash out. Not that having other non-white people around makes a difference. Very true. Thanks for your time and for any suggestions you may choose to offer uh, right on non-white female, black female specifically. She does not have children. That was one thing that I was kind of thinking about uh, in going to uh, respond to her that uh, if I was if it was just me. I would I would investigate. But if she said she wanted it met. It checked all of the qualifications in terms of price point. Uh, it's close to her job, accommodations, and whatever other serv services, amenities that she would need. It has all of those. It's quiet. Hopefully the water hasn't been poisoned. Racist banner noted, I would investigate, but I would take it. But if I had children, that might change things substantially, and especially if they were younger. I would have to, me, the mother, we would have to sit and have, you know, lengthy chit chat, you know. How do you feel about all this? How old is the child? Hmm. Hmm. That would, that would radically alter the equation. But if it's just me, and since she doesn't have children, we can put that to the side. Just for a single black female, or even if we were going to be a single male, but this single female, I said I would, but she asked directly if so. If this was your circumstance, you go, you see, bam, Confederate flag is in the window. Okay. Mostly white subdivision. I said, now I would investigate. Now, what all did that entail? She said she saw a black female. I would go see if you can chat it up with her and just let her know, like, hey, I'm considering uh, purchasing property in the area. Just wanted to try to do my research, find out, you know, how you like it. How long have you lived here? Uh, have you had any troubles, property damage? Have you had to call the police for any reason? Has rate and you could just ask, you know, did you, the, do you see the Confederate flag over there? Has that guy been a problem? The people that live over there, have they given you any trouble? See what they say. See, do you have children? Your children, do they talk about, do they ever have any problems? People tease them when they're outside playing at the playground, riding their bike, anything like that, waiting to go to school, coming home from school, children mess with them. See what they said. Just, you know, you know what your interests are and that sort of thing. Ask them questions. See if you can talk to, you know, if you can go uh, hang out, if they have a park or something like that, go talk to some of the black people that live there, go to the library. Even maybe I said, I would check the news in the area, uh, check the newspapers to see if they have any reports. If you check the newspaper online, you could do that conveniently, like from your sofa, 
check the newspaper online, see if there are any reports of any incidents in this area, uh, call the police department, see if they have any reports. Uh, you could just check, kind of go crime in general for that area, vandalism, racial harassment, see if they have any information that might even be one. I don't know, but some police departments, that sort of information you could check online and see if they've had any reports where someone's made any allegation of, you know, racial abuse or anything like that. However, they, uh, discrimination, racial discrimination, anything of that nature, see what they say. Maybe even like the last three, four years, check, see what you find. But I would investigate, um, see what they say. Any, exactly what she said. We are not safe anywhere on the plantation. Nowhere. That is definitely, you want to be observant just as she was check out the place do your diligence if you see something like that check and really even if you didn't see something like that all of the steps that I mentioned previously would still be appropriate check it out make sure that you're comfortable and with if something like that does catch your catch your attention that you think is significant could be a safety security threat well now we know we got to be organized as soon as we get here. That means security system, cameras, uh, definitely want to have a camera pointed at that residence and might even want to have a flagrant camera. And then they even have some of the hidden cameras uh, that look like a, a rock or a lawn jockey, you know, whatever, something inconspicuous. And it's actually a camera that's pointed right at that property. Bam. So you can see anything you have any vandalism problems, uh, trash is mysteriously appearing in your yard, anything of that nature, your car vehicle gets keyed. Hopefully none of this happens, just, you know, uh, hypotheticals, um, but bam, uh, camera security for your residence, some sort of alarm, that sort of thing. And really do your diligence, maybe having a firearm weapons, whatever it is, and really making sure that you can secure your property. But yeah, we are we are in danger anywhere that we are might be quality steps to take beyond. I said I would still get the property doing my diligence. I guess if I talk to the black people there, they probably could tell me some things that would make me reconsider. Like if they said their children had been terrorized and they're thinking about moving, they've had to call the police five, ten times that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's, you know, let me give this some thought. Might have to go and ask them a few more questions or, you know, they probably could say some things that would make me, you know, reconsider, especially uh, if I talked to a number of black people and they seemed it seemed like there were problems that, you know, that might make me reconsider. But if they didn't have anything substantial, I mean, it would it would have to be quite a bit more than just we were called a negro. Now, if this is I was called a negro, you know two o'clock in the morning mm, every other night last eight months that would be reconsidered but if it's just you know they called me a negro you know I think sometime last summer and you know Herb said that they called him a negro right at the end of the fall and I think Lucy said they called her a negro at the beginning of last year like that type of thing like eh, eh that's good to know but I don't know if that'd be enough of a deterrent but I would want to know the details as much research as I could find, check out, you know, try to make an informed decision about 
how safe you think the relatively right, how safe you think the area will be and then how much, you know, you can put in place to try to bolster your uh, defenses and even letting other people know, too. But, yeah, I said I would ask. So if you all I think I guess particularly if we have female listeners, right, because there might be some differences some things that I'm not considering or thinking about or things that would be important to you if you were a single black female and you were kind of going into the same sort of situation things that you would be concerned about is is there anything specifically that would make you say nope this is not going to be a good situation I don't even want to get started or anything like that let us know uh, the number 605-313-5164 the code 564-9438 pound press star six one if you would like to participate number again six oh five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound Press star six one if you would like to participate. As I said, if we have uh, home buyers uh, in the audience, good credit score, presumably, let us know if you have any tips for this sort of situation. Think questions that you ask, resources that you use to help you decide on is this a safe area? Is this someplace I'd feel comfortable? living, having my children, people come visit me, people that I care about, bringing them into this environment to come see me, that sort of thing. Let me know. Am I, if I'm, if you think I'm overlooking something in all this, let me know that as well. I'm not a female, so I might, you know, might not have the correct perspective on things. Uh, let's see quickly, just to share a few of the notes I had on some of the audio segments, and then we'll nap callers and such uh, as I said no spectators we have victim you know requesting input about a housing purchase that is important so have your thoughts ready let's see uh, with some of the commentary that we heard at the beginning they had the snippet uh, about the corruptive influence of social media and that was young white boys talking about how addictive it is and you know just you can constantly be checking for someone else and they have studies uh, talking about that exact sort of addictive behavior where you want to check obsessively you know every 15 minutes every 10 minutes did I get a like did you message did you comment why didn't you reply yet what's going on all of that and how that is so unhealthy especially for young still developing brain computers Again, we just, you know, had white Jesus's birthday. Hopefully we didn't have a rash of folks out there buying brand new iPhones for, you know, the little people in your life. Wait as long as you can before putting those devices in their paws. Uh, Wait as long as you can. Dumb phone, all the rest of it. Don't want to start them on that social media path. Uh, the report, they recognized the passing of King Hollins. He was one of the Freedom Riders, black male in 
Nashville and they said he was all about fairness in his life. That word fairness, words are so important. Uh, it, it even stuck with me. We just talked to Paul Kicks about his book on racism, white supremacy in Alabama in 1963. He briefly mentions the freedom rides uh, that had happened going through Alabama uh, as well. Lots of brutality uh, down in the good old state of Alabama with the freedom riders. Uh, anyway, but passing of King Holland's lots of material on the so-called freedom rides, uh, 1961, unless my memory is bad. Uh, same vein, really. Uh, they talked about Sam Allison, black male, uh, first black referee, black male referee in the premier league. Uh, that's soccer football in the UK in, I think they said 15 years or so, give or take. Uh, cause I thought they said 50 at first and I didn't see him. It's like, Oh, it's 15, 15. Got it. Okay. 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 Um, it's, it's almost 2025 and we're still talking about first this and first Negro that and first Negro this and we haven't had a Negro this in 25 years and haven't had a Negro this in 50 years. Like, come on. That is, that is embarrassing. All of that is the system of white supremacy racism. And they, they even said that you get to a certain, I guess they have some sort of grading schedule for the referees. And they said for the football referees that you get to, a level four, I guess that's like as high as you can go for they have to promote you to whatever. And I said, up, oh, that is the graveyard for black male referees. What a metaphor. That's where you go to die. End of your career right there, buddy. You know, you're not getting any more. They got the glass ceiling. Isn't that they at least pretty it up when they talking about white women? Not for the Negro. Nah, that is the graveyard. All right, let's see. The crypto is doing much better now. I did include the reports with the volatility uh, and Sam Bankman freed uh, and some of his other white colleagues and nefarious activity. It has so-called rebounded at this point. The volatility of that market would give me tremendous pause. We do have some non-white people who said, hey, I know dark people who have made a good amount of money. That might be true. It seems like there is a lot of instability with all of this. But if you have figured out how to make some money, do well, make save as much as you can and maybe share how you did all this with some other victims of white supremacy so they can duplicate. I think that was non Clemson dad said he had talked to other non-white people. Maybe, maybe he talked to some of the ones who made well on all of this and said, Hey man, do your research out here telling me it's volatility. When I'm making cheddar, man, credit score is booming. Show us how you did it so we can mimic. Uh, let's see the credit scores. I didn't even know the dudes that, the FICA score is named after. I didn't even know that. No idea. I guess they don't teach you all of that uh, in school. That report from WNC, North Carolina Public Radio, I didn't play the entire report, but they did include that in some states over the last few years, they have begun to include some component of financial literacy in high school curricula 
and they said that they already have data that this makes an impact like they've been able to look at students who graduated from high schools where they have some sort of course that teaches you about your credit score maybe you learn who these guys are where they get the FICA score from and all of that but the students who get to take that some sort of class like that compared to the students who do not and you see that they are less likely to default and less likely to miss payments like it was kind of you know, interesting that already they haven't been doing this very long and it's not widespread that you're required to get this sort of training in schools. That's when I'd even be curious. So is this like CPR? Where you're going to be more likely if you're in a predominantly or exclusively white school that you'll be more likely to have access to a CPR class, a financial literacy class <laughs> like, whoo, that is Wow. I mean, you are way better, way more informed, not a little bit, way more informed with life saving information. But that was not included. The demographics of who gets access to the financial literacy classes in high school, that notwithstanding uh, the all of the conversation around what gets factored into the score that this is private information. You might not even have access to how your score was tabulated. And, you know, wait a minute, is this is this accurate? And do I have proper recourse if I think I've not been treated fairly? They use that fair word in there so many times in a report that ostensibly was supposed to be talking about racism, credit score. And they did at a number of points. They even brought in, we're getting close to Dr. King's holiday, his daughter, Bernice King, her quote where she said, it follows you around like a shadow. Another metaphor of white supremacy because shadow, that is the light has been blocked out. Darkness. They even call black people. That's a racial slur. Sometimes it'll be shadow. They'll call it. They have white people that they have a, a hound, a canine pet that is black or has really dark fur sometimes they'll na- nickname him shadow they say yeah bad credit score just follows you around like an old shadow no man <laughs> no man the pseudo she even said the pseudo the pseudo science of white supremacy racism what gets factored in what doesn't they said hey the biggest factor is do you have a job stable income that is the biggest factor and they know hey system of white supremacy is set up to make sure you dark people do not have a stable income ain't by happenstance not by a long shot even within that report I thought it was so important they said uh, number one even before they got to all of that where they talked about the appraisal which is the same thing who does these appraisals? Who figures out, you know, your your property is worth this? And she even, it was a white woman in the segment. She said, yeah, because it could be that, you know, your house just ends up on the wrong side of town. And you get the bad appraisal. So that impacts your credit and all that. Your credit score could even impact if you get employment. Uh, for some, you know, jobs. That's obviously not going to be every job if you're doing chicken nuggets and that sort of thing. But for some jobs, yes, they do consider your credit score. But yeah, that was uh, 
I'll make sure I get the correct name in for the white woman in that segment who was talking about the uh, where you live if you live on the wrong side of town. And then the white host for the program, the white woman's name, Carly Urban, the white host for the program, Mike Collins, he got to the very end. This was almost an hour report. I didn't even play half of it, but it was almost an hour. Mike Collins got to the very end of the report and says, Okay, Ted Roseman, who I suspect is a white man, I have to look to verify. Uh, I know Frederick Weary is a black male, already looked. He was in there as well. But Ted Roseman goes in, he says, Okay, Ted, look here. We know racism is a part of it. We we know that. What what can we do to address all that? And we have thirty seconds. And Ted says, Well, you know, we take a lot to unpack all that. And they start turning the music on and everything. It's like, man, come on. We had, we had a full hour. A full hour in a segment that is credit scores, their history, and the bias baked in. Delectable Negro. Are we talking about chocolate chip cookies? Or are we talking about the system of white supremacy racism? Economics specifically. But it's baked in. Why are you going to wait till we got 30 seconds left? All right, Ted Roseman. Yeah, I guess some deliberate racism is in there. What do you do about all that? 30 seconds. Turn the music on. Get the music. <laughs> we fade him out like, uh, yeah. Lord works in mysterious ways. We'll just pray on it. Thank you kindly. <laughs> that's, about, that's about what you can say in 30 seconds with, with the music coming on loud in the background. Like, yes, yes. Yeah, that, that tricky old racism. Mm. Man, that would be one to research as well. Credit scores, things you can do in a system of white supremacy to protect, rebuild your credit scores, information to share with your children. Maybe your child, if they're at one of the schools where they require this, wow, that is amazing. See how effective it is. Your child might be way of the, at least the data they had in that report. Your child is doing better off if they're at one of those schools where they get that sort of financial literacy 12th, 11th grade. Anywho, uh, let's see. Oh, and they even included, they said with the black people in North Carolina, they get uh, worse rates and all of that. That's one where I suspect even if they have the same equivalent income credit history as white people, they do not get the same credit rates, have higher interest rates than white creditors white people seeking credit rather that would be my suspicion but that was the one where they they rushed out we got 30 seconds we got 30 seconds yeah yeah uh let's see the the commentary on amazing grace remember dick gregory i think he mentioned that when he was on our program as well although i heard him talk about that many many times i think I don't think that black people hear that song and say, well, I don't care. Slave master made it and all that's irrelevant. It's about the under. I don't think that is the thought process for most of the people who are classified as black who sing that song. I think most of us have just been brain trashed. I know I can speak for myself until I heard Dick Gregory say that. I didn't even know that. It has just been sung and sung and sung and hummed and all the rest and the bagpipes. I didn't even know that. 
So for me, it's not at all. It has nothing. I don't even know what you mean. Under there, we got the dog again. See how the ubiquitous hound in white supremacy, white dog, if you will. But I had no connection to no so-called underdog. And once I found out what the song was connected to and the origins of the song, which I don't think most non-white people know, man, I think we can pick another underdog song, right? We can get Beyonce to work on something, Jay-Z, Kanye West, some, right? We can get something real nice too. It'll be catchy. We can dance to it, all that. Nice video. Why do we have to rely on this one connected to a white racist slaver? Why is that? Nah, man. Nah, man. And, And that segment from NPR, they got so many black people. NPR never has that many black people on a report. They got Aisha Roscoe, black female uh, reporter. They pulled in Dr. Melvin Butler down there next to the uh, retired firefighter. He's at the University of Miami. They pulled in so many black people to, oh, this Negro, dare I say, amazing grace is Negro culture. Are you serious? Come on. Come on. And I don't care who sung it. Now, when they started going through and they got to go get Retha Franklin and she's sung it and we and oh, get Mahalia Jackson. I'm going to tell you when they got to Mahalia Jackson. That's nice. She sung to calm down Dr. King and all that. They'll probably mention that next month for his holiday. But what I thought of the good book, Isabel Wilkerson wrote the warmth of other sons when she tried to move to Chicago they didn't have no grace for Mahalia Jackson nigga woman if you don't get out of here and care nothing about your credit score either because I suspect Mahalia Jackson she probably had a pretty good credit score nah (laughs) care nothing about that get your hind parts out of here Mahalia Jackson that's what I thought about when they got Mahalia Jackson singing Amazing Grace but I don't care nothing about you could have my grandmother singing Mahalia Jackson you could have my mother singing uh, Amazing Grace with Mahalia Jackson no less I don't that is embarrassing that's Negro culture I'm singing a song by a slave master that I don't even know probably the connection of all that that's Negro culture I'm so uninformed about everything and then I got to come out and moan and wail. Why do I have all of this heartache? Fuller got the uh, Fuller's in the archive saying that, that, yep, that is Negro culture. Why do we come out and do it that way? They got to put all these, go get Dr. Melvin Butler and put all these academic turns on it. The moons and the whales. Why do we have all this heartache and sorrow for every song? Why is that? Oh, you think it's because they called Mahalia Jackson a nigger woman, you think that's, you think that's what, you think Mahalia Jackson had to sing Amazing Grace at Dr. King's funeral, April 1968? You think that's heartache? I'm not with any of that. We can pick a new song. It's embarrassing. Just the whole slave. We do a whole lot of that. What? Encouraged by white people. When they included Barack Obama singing Amazing Grace, that was at a funeral, man. Talk about heartache. Another race soldier has come into a church again. They were doing that in Mahalia Jackson's day. 
come into the church and killed up all the black people. Deliberately so. Accused them of being racist or rapists too. Killed a black state senator too. I remember when I watched all that live. And I said, are you serious? What in the world? What in the, what is all this carrying on? What the, Negro culture, really? Uh, in between Negro culture, Native American remains, we're going to repatriate. They said they have 200,000 remains. Put Jeffrey Dahmer to shame. How many times this calendar year have you heard that where white people, they got hundreds of thousands of non-white body parts, skulls, skeletal remains, fingers, foots, toes. We got them by the hundreds of thousands. Who's ignorant about racism? We're not even talking about all of the slaughters and lynchings and castrations and everything that would go into. We got the remains of 200,000. Who's ignorant about white supremacy? And apparently have extensive catalogs of all of this death and slaughter. Trophies. Who's ignorant about racism? Jeff Dahmer. Uh, the last one. They talked about uh, or they spoke with the first black first. See, we had that at the beginning. See, we started Sam Allison in the UK. And then on the other side of the planet, we had the first black female regent at the University of Colorado. Wanda James, victim of white supremacy. It took Deion Sanders to improve things for black students and faculty at the University of Colorado. I just had to sit on that like, are you serious? Deion, and they didn't even say like it's great now because it's not, but just it took Deion Sanders for us to get grits in Boulder, Colorado. They didn't say they got a new stadium. They didn't say they got a new Negro minority center. They said Negro music. I don't know if they mean Amazing Grace, the Mahalia Jackson version, or James Brown, but they got Negro music and grits. Shame on me and Negro hairdressers. In 2025. I'm at a loss. Uh, They said every home game. 20 million dollars. Into Boulder, Colorado. Reb and Dill, you all lived in the wrong era. You wouldn't have even had to bomb the school, man. Y'all could have just went Boulder Games. That's like 40 minutes from Columbine. Y'all could have just went rooted for Prime. 
made videos about that. See if you could have went, done some uh, video graphics for the university, man. You could have had a totally different life, man. Born too soon. Uh, grits, music, and Negro hairdressings. They've been talking about racism at Colorado and the black students like forever. They have an ESPN documentary uh, when Dr. James, I'm assuming that the regent is uh, Wanda James as a doctor. Dr. James, she said that the racism has been here like forever. That's why black alumni at the U of C, that's why they don't want to donate and send any money because they just felt real uncomfortable. They felt like they were victims of white supremacy when they were here. She said, I remember when I was a student here, the campus police took the tackle football program and used that to identify potential criminals and rapists on campus. Talking about the Negro male football players. Privileged. That is in the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, The Gospel According to Mac. They show you the program. They talk to the black male rapists suspected. They talk to them. They say, yep, the police used to rub out. What are you doing? What are you up to? Mm, 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 mm. This is an ancient history. This this is not one of those where they say this is 1960s, 1950s. Eh, 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 eh. All of this is in color. <laughs> 1980s, 90s, that time frame. Oh, yeah. Potential rapists. They got uh, Sports Illustrated, I think, did a big color shoot University of Colorado with all of the black males and times that they had been arrested and got in a fight and all the rest of it like got these whole team of hoodlum negro males oh disgrace oh. all through the documentary when I said most of the ESPN documentaries are about racism but that's you know if you just want to add to your continued Colorado Columbine research the gospel according to Mac ESPN 30 for 30 in fact if you have younger non-white males they're interested in football and they got caught up in all of that TV watching and everything with Colorado and Coach Prime or if they're older males and got caught up in all of that and you want to try and pull them into counter racism hey I got a documentary we can check out make you think about what Coach Prime is going through and everything out there gospel according to Mac let's check it out even got a little cowbell effect in there uh, too. I already told you half of it. it. It becomes a big climax of the whole project. Big cowbell and everything. You may think we've even played a sound clip of it before on this program. Anyway, uh, but the Negro culture aspect of it, you have, every time someone says black culture within a millisecond, it should be a reflex black culture is replacing white supremacy with justice if that's not black culture it's worthless it's trash it should be thrown away if you're telling me negro culture is grits that's everything is slave culture it's all some slave culture let's go hop over the broom let's go down by the riverside and do a little jig now we can't swim so we can't get too close but you know we can at least go and do a jig by the riverside when we don't have to shuck corn it's Negro culture. That's all of it. Let's go play on the banjo. Fiddler from Roots. That's all of it. Grits. Whatever chitlins and what have you leftovers that they, vittles that they give the slave to eat. Negro, delectable Negro. Negro culture. And cornrows. I don't even mean just being out in the field shucking the corn. I mean the hair. That's about all I ever hear about Negro culture. We heard that this week. Dr. Vernus L. Haddix 
incredible program. White supremacy and aviation. We got the same thing. He said, I can't be black. What does that mean? James Brown. Being black, Negro culture, if it's anything, it's got to be replacing white supremacy with justice. Negro culture, counter-racism. That's anything else is we are still confused. We are still confused. Uh, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Uh, any hoodles, uh, Colorado is. We've been talking about Colorado all year long. Absolutely amazing. Anyway, number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The housing situation, especially if we have uh, female uh, home buyers, let us know. I should say house purchasers, homeowners, as they will say. Uh, let us know. Would you be the situation scenario email that I read? Would you feel comfortable making a purchase of this property in this area? Got a white person with a Confederate flag in the window of their property? Would you be comfortable or would that be enough to make you look elsewhere? Let us know if you have any concerns or anything that you would investigate before you move into this area. You can let us know that as well. Make sure people try to stay as safe as they can. Make uh, quality decisions in the very dangerous environment we occupy. Let's see. Uh, folks who dialed in. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Non-Clemson dad. Uh, hello. I hope everyone's having a wonderful day. Um, there were some things my wife and I wrote down about the person potentially buying a property. Um, one of the things that my wife said is that uh, maybe you should consider visiting the property multiple times during the day and seeing, you know, how people interact with the, envi- in the environment, um, you know, and then, of course, with that person who potentially has a Confederate flag in their window, yeah, that's definitely a red flag and it's scary. But truth be told, that's just the nature of living in America. You could be in an all-black neighborhood and still feel that kind of fear, even um, outside of the Confederate flag. Um, I do have a friend back in Indiana, and he's I think he's retired now, um, black male, him and his wife. And, of course, you know, the Navarone son has since moved out. But they removed. They moved into a um, what would definitely be considered a white neighborhood um, when you know he was done with his military service, and I think this was like the, if not, I think the late '90s, early 2000s. And um, when he moved into his house, he had an issue with neighbors or someone's kids vandalizing his um, mailbox. You know, in that situation, that can be real scary, considering that at the time, you know, he had his wife and his, you know, his um, his son who was a child back then. Instead of calling the police, what he decided to do is that he went to the neighborhood association meeting and said that he was new to the neighborhood and said that he's been having issues with people vandalizing his property. And what he said is that um, I'm new to the neighborhood. I am a veteran. 
um, and I will defend my house and my family. And after he said the association, we all assumed that the word got around, the vandalism stopped. Um, so, you know, things to keep in mind moving into a new neighborhood, especially when you see one with the uh, Confederate flag. Are you willing to defend yourself, your family, and your property, and at what cost potentially? Um, let's see. Um, shopping around for mortgage um, financing. Um, I remember when me and my wife, we first bought our house. Before we got to that step, we were told or advised at the very least to get the financing in place first. Um, not sure if you got the financing in place for yourself yet, but one of the major issues that we ran into was uh, qualifying. I remember we first um, called Wells Fargo, for which my wife had an account, and they were like, well, we're not offering loans in the area that you're looking for a house. Um, as you know, Wells Fargo has gone through multiple lawsuits from the state and federal governments about their lack of lending to uh, non-white people. Um, there was another um, a mortgage company we went through, and for some reason it took weeks, 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 and maybe even well over a month for us to um, get qualified. And every week they would ask us for more information, um, and we never got qualified. They were just simply wasting time. And then um, finally my wife and I went through our current credit union, and in less than a week we were able to qualify zero issues. It was amazing how fast the process went. While we were looking for a house, we wish we would have started with the credit union as opposed to the Wells Fargo Bank or the credit lending company, which seems to just run us around in circles. Um, let's see. Getting through inspections. Um, my wife says she heard about the part with the inspections, and she was more than a bit dubious. Um, you know, in this market, there are people who are flipping houses. You know, one of the things you might want to check is to see when the house was bought and sold and the last couple of times it was bought and sold and how quickly it happened over the last couple of years. So for example, if someone bought a house within the last year and then it's back up for sale, that potentially means that it's a flip. And um, usually with those kind of situations, these people are trying to get in, get out as quickly as possible. And though they might put in a fresh coat of paint inside the house, the quality of whatever they said the remodel is, is usually, in, in, well, in my experience, not very good. And you get end up spending a lot of money on a house, and then a couple of months, if not a couple of years down the road, you start running into problems that um, that probably were probably always existing, and um, they didn't for them somehow to make sure they're able to sell the property and make a lot of profit and leave you with the liability. So when you purchase such a house, especially a remodel. You should absolutely definitely get an inspector for someone of quality. So, for example, you can't just go and, you know, well, of course, you can go and find an inspector on uh, Google, for example. But you might want to um, question the work of the inspector. I'm um, sorry, the inspector. Like, you know, what does, uh, does the inspector have references? Can anyone vouch for the inspector's work? Because um, me and my wife, we did have an issue with our inspector. You know, he wasn't the worst inspector. But there was a couple of things he missed that really irked us in a bad way that kind of blindsided us. Um, but, you know, um, but watch out for that kind of thing. You don't want to be upset with the inspector that you get and you feel like um, you come across something that they themselves were paid to find before you made a decision on that house. Um, and, of course, you know, um, money can you put as a down payment on that house as well, too. Um, along with that, um, most people don't understand that, you know, loans are getting ridiculous now. You know, it's very possible we might move from the 30-year mortgage to the, you know, 40- and 50-year mortgage. Um, once upon a time, mortgages used to get paid within five to seven years. 
Now they're getting paid in much more than 30 years, even though the highest term is 30 years because people refinance to try to lower their um their mortgage payments, but they're actually extending the amount of time they're paying the loan. And this is how banks make their money. They make money on the interest, but most importantly, they make money on the fact that your term your term spends decades. And um, though you might feel like it's a smaller payment in the month in that moment, the amount of money you spend on that property can be significant when you look at the amortization over the um over the course of um over the life um over the lifespan of that loan. Um and of course when you're paying that alone um several years, especially the first ten years of a thirty year mortgage, that's when the vast majority of your payments is going towards interest, not principal. And if you, you know, you move too fast or you re um you know, refinance your loan, you could end up just spending a significant amount of your time and money just um treat um paying for the interest. And of course, you know, depending on what you get, um, especially if you're talking about a remodeled home, even after a house is remodeled, you still got to worry about the maintenance that comes with it. And most people don't think about the maintenance of uh, buying a house, whether it be new, remodeled, or refurbished, whatever word you would like to use in whatever situation. Um, and um, these contractors are getting ridiculous, um, especially when it comes to pl- – we hear, at least me and my wife – um, we hear the worst thing about uh, plumbers. As a matter of fact, other contractors warn us about plumbers and how it seems like plumbers in particular are really charging really excessive, absorbent prices um, and, of course, you know, inflating the cost of things. Um, so just things to look out and keep in mind. Um, our neighbor, for example, um, it might not be an issue right now, but we know because we um, lived here before the house they moved into uh, was sold to them. The people who came in and did the work or remodeling work, they did it in like less than 30 days. And we saw them, for example, redo the roof. And while we were looking at them, do um, you know, um, redoing the roof, you know, some of the, you know some of the places on the roof were like concave in and stuff. We could clearly see that they didn't do a good job. But here they are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on this remodeled or refurbished house, and it's very possible they might have. Um, problems going into the um, not-so-distant future, so which is why it's so important uh, to get these kind of places inspected along with, you know, whatever potential environment you might move into that might be or feel unsafe when you say things like Confederate flags. And with that, I'll mute my line. Much obliged, non-Clemson dad uh so much to to research and investigate when you're trying to get that property um man ask lots of questions i hadn't even thought about that the inspector and if they miss something and all the rest just man try to do as much uh investigating research uh as you possibly can i think that's a great suggestion too to go back at like different times so you can kind of see you know is it different foot traffic, uh, you'll see different types of people, uh, different times to see, you know, kind of what's, what's happening there, different days, even weekend, person, weekday, all of that good suggestion as well. Uh, other folks who dialed in, you have commentary, uh, thoughts about purchasing this property for a single black female. Let us know. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, greetings, callers and listeners. Um, thanks non-Clemson, by the way, um, so much. That was a great amount of information. I literally had to just stop and start taking some notes. Uh, The inspection part that Gus just mentioned, extremely important, the overcharging by possible um, workers that come in probably, I mean, you said 
plumber, but I'm sure electricians and others would probably do the same. Um, so yeah, that was some great information. Um, I'm obviously I'm not a homeowner since I'm taking notes as well, but one of the things I do think about is definitely the area and environment. Um, and I'm very, very particular about it based on having children. And I, I just don't want to be in a situation where I have to worry about them dealing with some authoritative lunatic racist, um, harassing them or doing something otherwise. It's, it's, um, it's a strong concern for myself, but being the fact that this person doesn't have children, it, it's tricky um, because it's if she's a single black female, it, it could be a, a situation of, of safety that comes first before anything else that may look good to be in the complex. But I would definitely go back around and speak to other people more frequently and see exactly what's going on. That would be my first thing to do and just keep asking questions as we, everybody is stating before to get a good idea of exactly what the environment is like. Um, because ultimately you're never gonna fully know until you actually live there, but you wanna avoid taking a risk like that financially um, or possibly with your life. Um, going into a segment now, uh, the credit score segues right into that. It's extremely important. I think it's great that this is mentioned for this time of the year because we, we tend to be a pretty high spending group and we overspend not just to impress other people by showing them what we can purchase and give them, but we overspend on ourselves and literally try to show off in front of other people that are just as poor as us most of the time. Um, so it's a very important and cautionary aspect when it comes to credit score because much like a lot of the information that's gathered on the, about us on the internet, you don't really know how much information they're gathering on us and what they're utilizing it for. And from what that segment says, they're going to expand the amount of information, which is <laughs> can become even more tricky for most people in that aspect. Um, and the cell phone segment, extremely important to me. I literally just had my son pass me his cell phone. I'm here on the East Coast. I haven't passed to me around nine o'clock and that's it. You can read a book, um, study, he illustrates, do some drawing, do anything else outside of being on a device um, for some time so that he continues to keep that muscle working and growing. Um, I, I have a, a, I get the New Yorker, the magazine, and on the cover of the magazine for the holiday of Thanksgiving is a whole entire family sitting around the table with meals half finished, but everybody has a cell phone on and is interacting on their cell phone and nobody is having a discussion with one another. And I bring that up to immediately go into Neil Postman's amusing ourselves to death. And I've spoken about this before because his work just keeps coming up and every time when I think about the disconnect that people are having with each other. And this happened to me in South Carolina where I was for the, uh, the holiday season, um, <laughs> which by the way, on its main strip in Myrtle beach has a Trump store, <laughs> which I just thought was insane. Um, and which also every restaurant that we participated in or went to was separated like literally black people were seated in one side of the restaurant 
and white people were seated in another. And it was just you know, fascinating to see. And I didn't mention it to my significant ever until afterwards. Um, and they always tried to seat, it, seat us near the bathroom, which I refused. Um, but being down there, one of the interesting things that happened was I was down with family members and comment was made about um, going over white people's homes. And I made a joke, but I was being a bit facetious. And I said, a white person let you in their house? And immediately what ended up happening was people around the table erupted at me and started telling me how ignorant I was and that white people are not all bad and you, know, you shouldn't think like that and why would you say such a mean thing and everybody around the table is black and I was taken back a bit and I was shocked because this is not a very difficult thing I noticed to have a conversation about racism but I wasn't even trying to have the conversation I was literally just trying to figure out, just making a, you know, a facetious joke, a little mean-spirited, but whatever. But it, it has drawn alarm to me, the fact that they didn't pay attention to what I had said and the fact that I said it in a joking manner. And I had to rewind the whole conversation back and explain to them how incorrect they were. And there was no apology towards me. I didn't expect anything. But it made me think to myself, like, wow, with these family members that I have here currently surrounding me, unlike others within my family, I cannot have conversations about racism, white supremacy to a certain degree. So I will therefore remove that topic going further and having any family functions with them. And um, that's just something I wanted to share as this time of year can be, again, tricky being around family. Just another lesson. Um, <laughs> encountering racism, white supremacy with family members. Um, that being said, uh, I will mute my line. Thank you for your time. Wow. I thought we got the sequel. This was going to be the eggnog riot of 2023, uh, where, uh, victim, uh, caller at nine Oh two nine, where he, uh, upsets the whole attempted family saying uh, a white person lets you in their home <laughs> just kidding just kidding just kidding not really and they erupted what why would you make such a heathen con- oh you've ruined white Christmas I'm not coming back now get on out of here you heathen I didn't teach <laughs> uh, I can relate I can relate um whew, it hey there are many terms uh racism avoidance disorder nine mighty wick had talked about that one before there are lots of different terms to describe victims of white supremacy and our reluctance to honestly talk about racism that is yeah, amazing grace, man. <laughs> That's that is centuries of conditioning and brain trashing and terrorism directly. Like so many times that we've been punished and killed for just ta- Dr. King, man. They're about to give him a holiday next month. There are so many black people, non-white people who have been killed 
just for talking about racism. When we read uh, Bill Russell's biography last year, end of last year, right after he passed, and he talked about the lynching that happened in Monroe, Louisiana, and he said that they couldn't even talk about it. It was in the newspaper. White people warned the whole Negro side of town in Monroe, Louisiana. You had better stop talking about this or else. And that was that. And that was in the oh, 19. Yes, can I? I just, yes, sir. I just, that was in the 1930s. It's been centuries of that. So kudos to you, sir, for, you know, it, you at least you didn't tell us that you were there. Coon, don't you yell at me and you no count slave thinking people. That's what I say about you. No count Uncle Tom's, all of you, Uncle Tom's and Mary Tom's and Aunt Tom's. And he didn't say that. Just, oh, OK, I adjust my code. <laughs> I didn't know you got to be careful. talking about these things. Yes, I'm sorry. I'll keep my mouth closed. And <clears throat> I'm still learning. Keep my mouth closed. <laughs> <laughs> um, matter of fact, wait, give me one second. Let me grab one of our folks that we missed, uh, just so we don't miss them all. Uh, but I will circle right back. Folks that we missed totally. Folks that we missed totally. May I be heard? There's one, Lauren. Yes, ma'am. Um, yes, sir. Good evening, guys. Good evening, everyone else. I had the black lady who was talking about buying a house. Um, it's really difficult to find a house that you can afford. And I, I could understand feeling uncomfortable about seeing a Confederate flag in the window. I completely get it. But the thing is, if it's white people in the neighborhood, you know, you should assume that sort of thing, whether they have a Confederate flag in the window or not. You know, they might have a mm -hmm, KKK uniform in the closet that belonged to their grandfather. And even if they don't have any of that, they still probably practice racism. I, I think I would um, go on ahead. I mean, I would, I would go talk to that black lady who I saw taking out the trash. Um, you know, I would make sure I was adequately insured, you know, flood insurance, fire insurance, these sorts of things. Um, I would also, she said she parked her car over there. I would consider taking a walk in the neighborhood. And if you're going to do things like that after you buy the house, maybe do it before you buy the house and see how the people in the neighborhood react to you. Um, also, with the repairs and stuff, they have home warranties. So you can just, you know, request a home warranty um, uh, when you buy the house. So if anything, you know, goes wrong with it, you can pay, you know, different companies have these different fees, some $60, some $100 or whatever, but something goes wrong with the sink or the pipes, you just pay um, the person who comes out to fix it, the, the small little copay type thing. And I would keep one of those, especially uh, being a female. You're not Bob Vila. You want someone, you know, to be able to come and fix things when they break without it being an outrageous price. Um I get this email from the New York Times, and they had uh, readers sent in the best advice that they had received for the year. And it was like maybe 20 or 30 things, but a couple of things um, really, uh, I wrote them down because I thought it was good advice. Um, wait as long as possible for your kids to get a phone. That was the first one I wrote down. That one Number again. Two, say that one said, again. Say that one again. 
wait as long as possible for your kids to get a phone. I think it was a white lady named Laura Lafrone or something like that from North Carolina. I put that in. That was the first one I wrote down. And I put them in the order of appearance, not the um, order of importance. But that one was pretty important if you have children. Um, number two is drive slower. Uh, it's safer, less stressful, and gives you more time to look around. Number three, wear a watch. Um, this way you pick up your phone half as often because you don't have to pick up your phone to see what time it is and um, get distracted doing other things on the phone. And um, number four, it said there are many things I can't control, but I can control how I do or don't respond. And I can't control others' thoughts. So, you know, so I thought that was pretty uh, constructive advice. Um, let me see. Uh, uh, as far as the news segments that were played today, um, Nikki Haley, the lady, um, you know, she, she's not white. And she's trying to be accepted by white people. So, you know, her response when she's asked about the Civil War, that shouldn't really be, you know, too surprising. I mean, I don't think she, uh, I mean, she's trying to get on the Republican ticket. She can't be too friendly with the Negroes. So, you know, again, I think that's to be expected. Um, the FICO scores, I didn't know that that, that's what that stood for either, Fair Isaac Corporation. I didn't know. I also noted all the times that they said fair in that report. Um, let me see. When they were talking about the FICO scores, they asked um, – it was a white man on there. They asked him a question after um, Martin Luther King's daughter talked. I think her name is Bernice. Um, they asked him, do you agree with that description? And he said, I understand that description. And then he started talking, but I don't remember him actually answering the question. Um, they were talking about repatriation of indigenous remains. 200,000 human remains is a lot. And also they said, um, they said they, after they make a request for the remains to be repatriated, they have 90 days to respond. That's kind of a long time. And it didn't say they get the remains back in 90 days. It said they have 90 days to respond. So that's not very much at all. Um, when there was a segment where they were talking about the University of Colorado, I guess, um, with Coach Prime, and the lady made a statement. She said, uh, she said uh, something about the population of black people quadrupled, you know, after uh, Deion Sanders and his family and staff and, you know, other people went to Boulder. Now, I don't know if that was accurate, you know, if the black population quadrupled in that area, but if it is accurate, that's a large increase and it shows just how few black people were there to begin with um, in New York. The, the black male that attacked the Two teenage sisters. One was 14 years old. The other one was 16 years old. That was a super interesting report. Um, <laughs> I read a couple of articles, and they kept talking about him being mentally ill. I thought that was surprising because usually they save the mentally ill talk for white people. Um, also, let me see. Uh, in the article, 
it said, hold on. So when he walks into the restaurant and the person is going to seat him, he tells this person, I don't want to sit with the black people. I want to sit with the crackers. And the New York Times says he used an anti-white slur. And crackers is the only thing that was mentioned in the article. And while that is definitely name calling, I don't, you know, think you should engage in name calling anyone regardless of their racial classification. Crackers is not an anti-white slur. Crackers refers to white people who own slaves cracking, cracking the whip on people classified as black. So I think that's an anti-black slur, even though it is name calling to white people. Um, and, and also, I don't think you can get your hair done in Boulder. The lady said you have to drive to Denver to get a haircut. And I, I think that's all I have for now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I thought Dr. James, uh, the first black female regent at the University of Colorado, much obliged, Lauren. I thought she said that was a part of the prime effect that they got Negro music, grits, and now you got a place where you, you know, you don't have to do that drive to Denver. Is that you still got they haven't had that much prime effect? You still got to drive to Denver to get a haircut and all that for the black females? Like, dang, I overstated the prime effect, apparently. Grits, Negro music. That's all they got. Dang. Uh, the I think with Mr. Hutch's, Hutcher's son the black male uh, where they immediately charged with a hate crime I thought it, that's the one where they said he they accused him of saying that he wanted all white people dead so is it is that I guess that would be two things where they could say see it's not just the, the cracker comment all white people being dead that that you know that's also that's why this is a hate crime is that does that add to it I don't think he said that that day. I think that happened beforehand. Oh. Mm. Mm. Can they do that? Can it be retroactive? Can they go back and if you have a history of making these sort of comments and then have you seen the victims? Do you know what they look? Because they said these are like tourists from Paraguay. I know you can be classified as white and born in that part of the world, Spanish speaking. But have you seen the victims in this case? I have not seen the victims, but the New York Times said shortly after he was seated and given water, the complaint says the second Tarsonary employee saw him stand up, approach a table where a family that appeared to be white was sitting, pull a knife from his pocket and stab one of the girls in the back. So it doesn't say they were classified as white, but it said they appeared to be white. That is fascinating. Hmm. I don't know. That's, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> Dr. Jeff Ward, he was just a guest on the program, and some people thought he appeared to be white. I don't know. That's mm, fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, we have to be mindful about all this as it proceeds. Let's see. Other folks uh, who dialed in make sure we don't miss people if they have uh any suggestions for our black female much obliged for your suggestions so i think that's at least two people who so far have said you know proceed they would purchase the property do your diligence and even hey 
you should do all this even if you didn't see the flag. Think might be a Klansman, Jeffrey Dahmer, both, Michael Swango. Do your diligence regardless. Logical. Uh, other folks, if you have uh, thoughts for black female trying to buy a board, yeah, trying to buy a house, let us know. Let's see, folks that we missed totally. <clears throat> Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, evening, Gus. Um, mortgage banker from Virginia. I hope everybody's having a, a great evening. I actually hopped on. I didn't hear the first hour um, as a black mortgage banker. I've been in the business for about 18 years. Not sure about the circumstances, but I can highly recommend that if she does her due diligence, um, purchasing real estate um, in this market um, is extremely beneficial. As long as you have some level of a long-term plan, there are plenty of pro black professionals out there that can assist you with honest, constructive guidance. So I just wanted to share that. Um, two additional things I wanted to add, Gus. Um, I am, obviously, I know Gus doesn't mess with sports, but uh, I grew up with sports in my home. And I am seeing a ton and a ton of promotion, specifically of gambling, and a lot of it is being directed towards, in my opinion, uh, non-white black people, um, specifically with new ads and magazines. Um, I had to have a conversation with one of my younger children um, that was getting involved in some of these prize picks and things of that nature. But throwing money at gambling is highly problematic and non-constructive, specifically because we have so many economic problems as it, as it is. So I would just encourage people to be very mindful. If you are participating in sports, it's all based on gambling, whether Stephen A. Smith or somebody else yelling at anybody. All of this is based on gambling. And the second thing is that um, just in mortgage banking, just in real estate in general, I just want people to pay attention to the market, see what's happening. Um, I think I mentioned this years ago, but the entire U.S. real estate market is built on not living near black people. So you need to be very, very cognizant of that when you're purchasing properties. People classified as white will value and devalue properties. But especially if those properties are, are near large populations of us, the values are going down, but there is some opportunity. So if you guys have school children um, or anything in that nature, it is imperative that we do a great job of making sure that we have great schools so we can educate our children because everything falls into real estate. I'll lay my plane. Love the show, Gus. We'll make a donation, and um, thanks for being so consistent. Consistency is important for sure. Invest in the cows. Hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com PayPal button in the top right corner. You'll see the links for PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Cash App address, cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Hopefully we've been worthy of folks' time and energy uh, over the 15 years of our broadcasting three votes for do your diligence get the property you know unless you get some info that says it is not a good decision to make uh, folks that we missed uh, totally you have a hand up people that we missed totally
let's see, uh, caller 9029, while folks, I guess, are getting their thoughts together and such, 9029, uh, were you, you going to follow up, sir? Yeah, I'm still here. Um, thanks, guys. I was just, the thing that was, um, I wanted to mention in regards to the story was just, we're in South Carolina, and I mean, I just couldn't help but like think about building roof. And we're there, and I couldn't believe that we went, that the family went in that direction as opposed to recognizing that. Because most people I noticed don't really realize that when you go and look at Dylan Roof's story, and then you look at his friends, one of his best friends who was black, his commentary was, look, he's a big guy. There's nothing wrong with him. He just had a couple of issues holding guns sometimes and we would, you know, take the gun from him and stop him. But he's a big guy, never racist, never a bad thing out of his mouth. And I was just like, oh, man, this is such a problem. But it was a very difficult thing to deal with. But, I mean, I made fun of it, tried to make light of it, but it definitely made me have to reconfigure or reorganize the way I'm addressing people um, within certain points or certain aspects of my family, you know? But um, that's it, I'll move along. When I heard that, I was thinking uh, that that was a legitimate question, not even being funny, because I know I really did not get invited to black people's residences, you know, growing up, things of that nature. And I think a number of other black people, we just heard that. We just heard that where a black person said that they remember as a child, they were invited to their white friend's house. They went white mom saw, Oh my gosh, where's this nigger child from? Oh no, this must be a mistake. Immediately packed her up, took her back. Mistake. Didn't know niggers. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think I'd even heard that from other black people that they really, you know, hadn't been invited to too many white people's homes, houses. I certainly have said over the years that if I did have children, that would be a rule to not have my child in a white person's house. Uh, they, you know, brag about being uh, gun nuts, gun, a firearm aficionados and racism in general. I would not want my non-white child in a white residence, even if I was present, but that notwithstanding, I think many, I mean, it's, that's kind of, yeah, <laughs> I think I would even, that's it. If anything, I can't be surprised. We have been conditioned that as the result of terrorism, when you have people who are fearful and have even been conditioned to not talk about white supremacy, racism, and we just had white Jesus's birthday, fair white people are fair you're not being fair all right vgq i will hey <laughs> minimize that's minimize conflict that is so important it's not i'm gonna win the argument and we're gonna go back and watch that whole dylan roof video right now and you know all of that that's not what any of this is about minimizing conflict with non-white people victims of white supremacy 
I will make an adjustment to my code, what I say, what I don't say in the future. It is very challenging to honestly discuss white supremacy race. And that's that right there is exactly that is a huge component of why white guests only. I'm not interested in, you know, let's go talk to all of the black people and argue with them and have them defend white people. VGQ, let's just talk to the folks who are causing the problem classified as white. Uh, Let's see. Caller in Florida. Did you have commentary to share, sir? Yes, sir. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Dust the hosts, the listeners and callers. I was thinking about uh possibly the the victim of racism that's looking to purchase the property, could look into the uh official records in that area, like the nearby county courthouse, see if she can look into the restrictions and see like the list of the uh, like rules and the conditions and things like that for that subdivision or that neighborhood area. Because at least from me working at where I'm at, it, well, a lot of the restrictions at a certain point in time had that, that racist clause of Caucasians only and things like that. And, uh, that was just something I was thinking about. Maybe the victim could check out or if there's, if there's any articles of any lawsuits or anything that have happened from that area or that property area. Uh, other than that, thus, speaking of Colorado, there's been a new person that started in a department from Colorado, a white woman. So a white woman do it better. And I haven't really had much contact with her, but that, you know, I was just thinking about that Colorado. So she's way from Colorado. Um, the, the Nikki Haley segment, I was thinking about that. Like when I seen that on the news and how the white person, I think that was a white person. See, now they, they didn't, I don't even know who that person looked or what that person looks like that asked that question. And then came back and said, well, you know, you didn't even mention slavery and what all you just said. And I just think that with her, it looks like from how they're reacting to her, like her being a non-white person, that's what I've seen white people do. Um, they'll, they'll give responses or, or they'll talk about something like slavery or anything that'll connect with racism and they'll use, they were using the term woke and I don't hear, I didn't see those same kind of responses. And then it, it said in the audio that I, I guess either she said or someone that was a spokesperson for her said it was a, a democratic plant or something like that. Like that, like I thought about that, how they can be slick and conniving with how they use language like that. And ask questions like, "Oh, I'm already already know how she's going to respond," and then I'm gonna just just uh 
embarrass her or shame her, I guess. I don't know what term to use. And say, hey, you know, you didn't even mention slavery. What are you doing? And, but yet Trump hadn't even shown up to none of the debates. And they talked about poisoning the blood of the country. And uh, Chris Christie saying he's dog whistling. He, they were using all kind of words. Um, people who don't look like us. And they know they could be way more direct than that. And I, I didn't see the same kind of uh, reaction, just, you know, making a comparison. And my last thing I wanted to mention is, and this has been something that's happened in the the courthouse as well, a white woman now charged with a felony on Christmas Day a couple of days ago. Now, did she have five, uh, you know, five offspring with a black male? They were in the car. And she shot, she got out at a Walgreens where they're supposed to exchange an 11-year-old. Yes, sir. Her and another black male she had a child with. So I have six, five with one black male and one with a second one. So the black male was riding with a black female. She walked up to the vehicle and shot the black female and shot him. So he's in critical condition and got back in the, no, after he, after she shot the black female, she says to the black male, you made this happen or whatever. And she had five non-white and plus another non-white offspring in the car with a weapon and led a high speed chase. Um, for a good while. So she's on a $2 million bond and her name is Amanda Jansen. I think it's J-A-N-Z-E-N. And uh, I think she's in Putnam County. But yeah, that that happened this week here locally. And that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Jeez. When you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring. High speed chase on Christmas. That is, phew, man. Mm, mm, mm. That's why he told us there was a black dude who came to the courthouse, victim of white supremacy, and he was slightly discourteous at first, but he wanted his documents or what have you. And then said, dang, you know, this is such a nice place. And wow, you work here and everything is so nice. I couldn't even, you know, imagine myself working here and all the rest. Like, uh, mm, I think unless you've led the police on a 13 mile high speed chase with children in tow, you could probably get a job here. We have certainly hired lesser folks. Wacky. Wacky. I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> like, um, gee, what in the world? What in the world? Like, uh, dang. Dang. 
you she worked at the courthouse uh miss jansen she worked at the courthouse just making sure i didn't hear it incorrectly oh oh no sir she she didn't work at the courthouse it was just a lot of white people who were talking about it um and i was like man is is the person she killed was that a non-white person and i looked at the um at the report it looks like the victim was a black female and the black the black male was the other victim but he's still alive so they were talking about that like the day because the courthouse was closed on monday for christmas and then on right on tuesday oh did you hear about this did you hear about the the lady who killed somebody and then it went to oh yeah he had it had been doing something to her so in a way still trying to defend her murdering this uh, victim of white supremacy. So yeah, she she has a new felony case. I think this is her first felony, but she had drug charges and traffic tickets and civil cases, child support and stuff, and had her children taken away from her. So yeah, yeah, she has a extended, as they say, rap sheet in the court records. Man, thank you for the clarification. Strive for accuracy. Strive for accuracy. I was like, man, did she work at the court? And she was, they were talking about this at the courthouse and justifying white homicidal violence and terrorism. Uh, but she was not actually a, a co-worker. Thank you for setting me straight. Um, that's kind of ghoulish, really, to be, I mean, with children? Like, what the... That uh, ugh, ugh. put that in the workplace journal. See there, see there. White people don't care about children. See, see. Um, that is horrible. Like, uh, man, when you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring. I mean, geez, that is horrendous. Uh, just man, can't be said enough. Um, yeah, think about that before you, you know, get to the bedroom as well. When you play around with sex, horrendous. Much obliged for sharing. That is a great uh, recommendation as well to go to the courthouse. I wouldn't have thought about that either to go and check <clears throat> for what sort of restrictions they may have had uh, in that location, that sort of thing. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, the caller who mentioned the problem with gambling and sports for younger non-white people or maybe even non-white people in general uh, we had spoke about that briefly within the last eight months or so they had a report about uh, widespread legalization of sports gambling uh, and it's oh man they haven't even got started I think next football season you will be able to place bets at the football stadiums when they have tackle football, NFL tackle football games. I know that has got to be super close, and it might be for college football as well. So you have not even seen, well, because I mean, once it gets to that point, like, hey, why can't you just go on NFL.com and make a wager or ESPN.com and make a wager? Or, you know, 
whatever for all kinds of things so you haven't even seen where it's going to be with all of that gambling that was mentioned in the report on racism and your credit score uh, where they were saying exactly what he said that she, it's not funny at all that younger people lots of them getting caught up and because I mean now yeah, you've had like a good we've had like a good 15-20 years of all of the TV programs with you know high stakes poker and all that so you know you got card gambling and sports gambling and all of that and people have been that are already addicted to the video game aspect of it so this just you know add more to it and do all that and you can bet all this time and they got lots of ways of enticing you and advertising it and all the rest of it so oh yeah I could see a whole lot particularly I would think black males who get trapped into all of that through the athletics and sports and it's so heavily promoted I could easily see that something that becomes an enormous problem and they were talking about that where it ends up being all kinds of financial ruin uh, with that that was even a big problem before with lottery tickets and scratchers I think we were talking about that before where you had lots of black people who already were in kind of a precarious financial predicament and then you know losing money that they didn't have to lose on you know I hope Chiefs Pat Mahomes can they repeat then they don't do it and dang another that's another reason not having a television then we're not going to sit around on our big 100 inch screen and watch the Super Bowl and all the 50 billion advertisements for sports gambling that air leading up to that so we can avoid all that just saying heavily promoted it's way, it is way more promoted than any book or what have you that I can think of all that sports gambling uh, any folks comments they need to get in before we get ready to wrap up Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. 60 seconds. Yes, I was. Pardon? 60 seconds. We're almost at three hours. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be very quick. I was motivated by the uh, caller from Florida. Uh, did you did you make a report on on the incident that took place where siblings shot each other on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Over the gifts? No, I think if that's the one where they were upset about the kiss Christmas gifts, no, I, right. I didn't uh, play a report about that. Right, it was just the the insanity of uh, of uh, as you recall it, uh, as you call it, white Jesus birthday. Uh, it's just part of it's part of the results of the confusion uh, results that non-white people have, uh, uh, and uh, you know things of that nature. Uh, will take place some probably even worse uh, if people didn't hear about it, where the uh, siblings were arguing over uh, who got so such many presents. And in turn, uh, one uh, male sibling uh, shot to death his sister. And in turn, his brother <laughs> uh, sh uh, shot 
the the uh brother who shot the sister you know it's just the only word i can talk about is insanity and uh, as a result of the confusion that is a pounding upon us through the system of racist white supremacy and that's it much obliged retired firefighter in florida hopefully and then all in the name of white jesus uh hopefully we can get all of this done be over with and move on to 2024 dry january as they say sobriety would be best all the i said that before white people that's for us to sit around and get mad about the gifts i heard that a bunch of times uh over the past few weeks or so not even just uh, limited to frustrations about this year's haul Christmas passed and times where I was mad they didn't get me a gift that I wanted and it was raggedy and lame and all that that woof moving forward constructive. We'll be here Wednesday, January three, early three PM Eastern, twelve PM Pacific. Hopefully we had something constructive to offer folks trying to purchase a home. Do your diligence, research, talk to non white people who are there, visit at different times. I think they're going and walk walking through the area is a great one contact the police courthouse diligence research uh and hey confederate flag u.s flag no member the christmas tree hey system of white supremacy racism all of them might equally translate to race soldier do your diligence uh sobriety would be best so there will be sobriety checkpoints this weekend probably through the middle of next week i would not be out and about under the influence if you have young non-white people new drivers especially let them know there will be sobriety checkpoints you do not want to be out late when i say late i mean like after 10 p.m get to one spot stay there if you got to consume alcohol do a cheer for new year's get to one spot you are there you leave the next day when you are sober you do not want to be under the influence when you are not capable of making the best decisions and then you randomly come in contact with a race soldier badge or no sometimes it's even dangerous coming in contact with non-white people under those circumstances sometimes even when we're sober see there he said <laughs> a white person let you know whoa 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 imagine imagine if everyone had been intoxicated and that had happened the eggnog riot of 2023 sobriety would be best I'll pause because it's almost New Year's Eve to underscore Oscar Grant creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice 
immediately. No name-calling, no gossiping, no throwaway offspring. Do your diligence. See if you can talk to black people who live in the area when you go to purchase your property. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Oscar Grant. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.